After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. Isn't Bill Smith the most popular name? Listen, start the machine. I'll tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead. Listen, there are some names that the world's going to run out of. Yes. And Bill, the world will, will, there'll be a, like, the world will run out of Bills before people get back into naming their kid Bill. Like, after Harry Potter came out, everybody named their kid Henry. They wanted to name him Harry. But, but they, they thought, wrote... they knew that people would know that it was because they liked those books. So they named him Henry. Huge proliferation of Henrys. I didn't know that. Well, about... they were, we almost ran out of Henrys. And not, now you, you can't throw a rock without hitting a Henry. I, they're, yeah. all, uh, they're all 10 years old or under. Uh, oh, okay. I feel like we're not going to run out of bills. What There's about Frank? Minutes. Frank seems to be dying too. Well, okay. Yeah, my dad was Frank. We almost named our daughter Frankie. So I was going to name her Frank after her paternal grandfather. And then Rose. Yeah, and Rose after her paternal grandmother and great-grandmother. So I was going to name her Frankie Rose. And then found out that there's some musician named Frankie Rose and just changed it to Rosemary because that's my mom's name. Good choice. But yeah, we'll probably run out of Franks, but they'll Frankies. What about George? I feel like yeah. that's, I, I like we'll, that I name. Think but we'll, I, I think we'll get very low on George's. Yeah, but do you think there's going to be a revival? Oh, sorry, Phil. My screen that it's hard to know what's going to be a revival. No one saw it coming that everyone was going to name know, their kid Henry. They I, named their kids Henry because I think they thought it, that they'd be smart. I like the name Henry, but I had no clue there's like a majority of kids now are named Henry. I know nobody named yeah, Henry. Yeah, but you I mean, go to, I don't know. You don't go know to a city, you go to a city, you can't throw a rock really? at a playground without hitting a Henry. Do and I you think it's Henry? for Harry Potter? You think that's like... My theory. Okay, that's your theory. I think it's a sound theory, but it's just, I've never I heard. think they were like, I really want to name him Harry, but then everybody's going to know I like those kids' books. <laughs> So they named him Henry because it seemed because it reminded okay. them of I him. I thought you were pulling legitimate research into that <laughs> statement, but that's just your feeling. That's no, just your gut. Certain, listen, 
<laughs> There's certain theories I'm into that are hard to substantiate. Like my brother Danny believes that he can't untangle in his head that Bill Clinton became president and all kids started wearing bike helmets. Like he feels that there's like, he feels that some, he doesn't, he hasn't untangled it yet, but he feels that there was a, somehow a link mm. between the Clinton presidency and for how many hundreds of years kids didn't have bike helmets. And then they all got a bike helmet when Bill Clinton became president. That's his theory. So I don't know. I, I don't share the theory. I'm saying like some theories are hard to like prove and disprove. They all started playing saxophone in their boxers too. <laughs> <laughs> Now, in terms of names, it would be interesting to know, like, just to tie this all together. Did Monica drop off in prevalence following the Clinton presidency? See, I could see that happening. Yeah, for yeah, sure. That, that seems very probable. Like I don't right know, now, though, because that was during that Friends show where the... Oh, oh that was true. That was peak Monica. Friends popularity. Like, right now, I wouldn't be surprised... And if this podcast had a different, if we had a different sort of focus, we could dig into this stuff a little bit more. I wouldn't be surprised if Jeffrey, if there were some people who were going to go with Jeffrey, had a change of heart. I'm not following. Epstein. There's a feller named Jeffrey Epstein. Yep. Yep. Oh, yep. Right, I'm following. Now. I got you now. That's, who was, that's very reasonable. Who was hung to death in his jail cell. <laughs> wink, wink, <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> no, I didn't say. No, oh, I said. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Good point. I, I put it like hung to death, like someone did it. <laughs> I feel like. Which chest... I, give, I think there's a 50% chance that's true. Which it circles could be us back to, to Clinton, Clinton. Just like those bike helmets, too. <laughs> Since we're so off topic, do you want to know the leading? Do you want to know the leading conspiracy theory? Someone explain. I, I didn't understand like what the leading. You want to know the lead conspiracy theory about Epstein? Like, Let's hear it. I, yeah, I, this I might be passe now, but like at a time, this was the one. As explained to me by someone who traffics heavily in conspiracy theories. It was that Epstein was a Mossad agent. That's good, man. Oh, I think so, oh, that's, that's old news, man. Well, listen, dude. I didn't, I'm, if I made it up, <laughs> I would have said I made it up. I'm saying this is... So you know this, Sean. You follow this kind of stuff? Oh, I thought I, you I've been down that rabbit hole for like two years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Sean's here. Sean Weaver, he's here to talk about ducks, but somehow he's not a big... And he's now a big Jeffrey Epstein expert. <laughs> Can you tell us the theory, Sean? Yeah, no, the the link or the thing that they say is that... Did I tell you this? No, you did not tell me this. Oh, okay. Mm-mm. Is that Ghislaine Maxwell, the lady that was just on trial? Yeah. As it goes, her dad was Mossad. Uh-huh. That's what they say. Oh, starts to make some gravy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but here, you're not filling it in. Let me just fill it in. This We're so far off. This is not what this show is about, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> it's just not what it's about. In fact, <laughs> Stu Miller from Coon Creek Outdoors is here, and he's supposed to be flipping a bobcat hide right now, which he's going to explain in one second. So bear with us. <laughs> we're going to get into appropriate subject matter. <laughs> Epstein was a Mossad agent. How he served the Mossad was he would get prominent academics, politicians, financial individuals, into compromising situations. Film them. Film them. Whatever he did. And then later, when Israel needed them to do or not do something, okay, they would say, oh, and by the way, we happen to have a very interesting video you might not like to be out. And 
as the conspiracy theory goes, that was why Jeffrey Epstein had to be silenced on that fateful night in his jail cell while the guards slept and the security camera malfunctioned. Mm. Plausible. Hmm. Anyway, Nailed Phil it. looks very titillated. <laughs> you can tell Phil like really wants to get into it, but he's also uncomfortable how off subject matter this is. Stu, introduce yourself. Oh, Brody, real quick, Brody's here. Chester the Divester. Which Chester is a very dying name. It's just been hanging on for like 100 years, I feel like. Yeah, I feel like that might be why I like you so much. Because you're the only Chester I've ever known. The pets are keeping it alive, though. Like dogs. Yeah. Cats. Yeah. <laughs> Rick Hutton's here. Seth's here. We're going to talk about Seth's upcoming wedding a little bit. I'm here. Hi, folks. Yeah, we're also joined. He's remote, but I, I still feel his presence. Uh, Sean Weaver's here, and he's going to hit us with the, the latest installment of Sean's Duck Report, which is one of my favorite things we do. Uh, what's up, Sean? What's going on with you? Well, just finally got off the road after two straight months of filming Duck Lore, our new duck hunting show. Um, I'm actually, the reason I'm doing this remote is I got a little sick, got a little ran down from being on the road that long. The utility company actually called while I was gone, and they wanted to check if my water meter was broke because I hadn't used any water at my place for two months. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, like, so he's been like dead or <laughs> yeah, it was kind of a nice wellness check, you know, knowing the utility company's got me covered. Yeah, like, you're like, dude, at least someone knows when I've been gone. <laughs> uh, also, Duck Lore, the first episode is coming out February 15th, and that's a Texas teal hunt with me and Jean Paul. And I like it. It's it's pretty cool. It walk a lot of walk fun. us through a couple more uh, episodes that are going to be coming up. Yeah, so first few episodes are going to be Texas Teal, then Callahan and me in North Dakota, Giannis in Nebraska, and yourself in Michigan. So jumping kind of all over the Midwest. Good stuff, man. Learn all kinds all of stuff kinds about of ducks. Yep. Learn a lot about ducks with a guy that knows a lot about ducks, Sean Weaver. Uh, but okay, now Stu, introduce yourself. All right, so um, I'm Stu Miller. I uh, I run a couple different YouTube channels. Uh, Coon Creek Outdoors is is the one that that I'm here for, um, and I'm kind of a a trapper more or less. So uh, that's how I I came to meet Steve, and uh, yeah, I, I dabble in uh, trapping and fur handling. So tell everybody where you're from. I'm from Illinois, Southern Illinois. <laughs> oh. I like when Stu, we got to get into this for a minute. Mm -hmm. So this is on point, Phil. Don't, don't get nervous. <laughs> I have a problem with this. I have a real problem with people in Southern Illinois who think they're Southern. And I told okay. Stu, if people ice fish in your state, you are not Southern. <laughs> like, I don't care where the Mason-Dixon line is. That's the thing. There's a lot of people ice fishing right now because of the cold. This is the perfect time for this. You can't be a southerner in a state where ice fishing is occurring. I disagree. I disagree. <laughs> I, I, disagree. I so disagree. <laughs> Stu says that he explained to me that there's so much dissatisfaction, that there's such a cultural divide between the greater Chicago area and then like the agricultural segment of... Illinois. Am I, am I okay to say yeah, this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's such a cultural finance, like just a huge cultural divide that that it's pushed Southern Illinois to the south in 
mentality rather than be associated with with the 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 the, the political corruption and ongoings in Chicago. Am I saying this correctly? 100%. Yeah. yeah. You get somebody 5 miles south of Chicago and they're going to say they're from southern Illinois. <laughs> Yeah, they're like, by which I mean not Chicago. Not Chicago. Uh, I fell in love with uh, Stu's videos because I would go, um, I found you in a totally organic way. I would be curious about how to do something with fur handling. Like, for instance, last year, a little over, well over uh, 13, 14 months ago, um, we got onto a couple red foxes one morning and got the red foxes. I had a, little uh, 17 HMR with me. And we got a breeding pair of red foxes. And I was like, I wanted to get them tanned and put up real nice. And now they adorn my daughter's. Actually, they hang from my daughter's bunk bed thing, and she loves them. Oh, cool. But, uh, and I wanted to, like, get them tanned for myself. And I used to put up red foxes and sell them when I was young, but I was just kind of curious about how to do the feet, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Different than how you do for fur handling, for uh, fur trade. And I would get to type it in, like, how do you do X, Y, and Z? And I'd wind up on your thing. Or how do you do X, Y, and Z with a skunk? And I'd wind up on your page. So eventually I sent you an email. Yeah. And it's been, we've been interacting ever since. So. Oh, yeah. Every day I ask them a question. Yeah. No, it's been, it's been fun. So the, um, that's how we met. We're going to talk about that. Now, here's what I want you to, we got a lot of stuff we got to cover off on. But I want you to, to explain, grab the bobcat. And explain what's been done and what people can listen to you now do. Like why we did what we did and where we're at with it now. All right. So yesterday um, we took a bobcat that was skinned. And then Steve, you fleshed it. Yep. And we Tube we, skin. Tell everybody what tube skin tube is. Tube skin. So basically um, the way that furs are sold through the fur market is their tube skin. And it's basically where you're going to make a cut kind of on its back end and you're going to kind of peel the hide off uh very similar to where you're like taking off a sock basically uh, yeah that's a good way to put it you know and you're going to peel that that critter down and you're going to end up with a as you said a tube of it's not going to be cut open where you know you, if you've seen uh like traditional pictures you know you see where they they split them split them up the belly or across the back and then yeah, you end imagine up with, that you're like the the incision being that like when you're gutting a deer mm-hmm. You make that incision all the way up to his chin, and then you got like an open hide. So then you would lay the the hide or the pelt flat ways. Um, yeah, this is this it's is, not going to look like a bear rug when you're done. No, with it. no, it's going to be all all together yep. in as like you said a tube skin. Yeah, so. you cut a just think about it like this: cut around and like the only cuts you make through the hide are around the ankles, right? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah. So imagine that you cut around the back, cut around the rear ankle, a circle around it on each leg. And then you run a slit up to the anus, and then whoosh, the whole thing comes off just like that. Peel it right off, yeah. yeah. So that's what I did to that bobcat. Yep. That's a small female bobcat. Small female bobcat, yeah. And then so after that's you- That's my, fa- my prized possession. <laughs> my favorite thing I owned used to be my buffalo skull that I found that I wrote a book about, but now it's that. Well, we better not screw it up then. Yeah. <laughs> so now after you, after you fleshed it then, we put on flesh and beam, and we used the- a fleshing knife to flesh all the all the hot, uh, all the membrane and the fat and all the residual fat. So we got it just down to the the skin. And uh, after we did that, we we split the ears because you're going to tan it for yourself. So we wanted to make sure you know you're that's gonna... something I never had done before. Yep. So we split the ears, and then uh, we put it on a board. So different critters are sold different ways, and uh, with 
like a canine, so your fox, your coyotes, and your bobcats, all those are sold fur out. So you can see the the presentation, the pelt. Uh, some of your other critters like muskrats, uh, minks, and coons, they're all sold fur in. So do you know what? Why I've, we, Seth and I were speculating about that the other day. Who decided that? And has, does it ever change? Have you ever heard oh, yeah. of it changing? Back in the day, they sold coons uh, actually flat. Oh, they did. You would split them. Yep. the The reason that I always been told is, you know, with with a bobcat, say, and a coyote, you're you're using basically all of that. So you want to be able to visually see that that whole hide. You want to see the fur. You want to see the fur, all of it. So whereas like on a coon, you know, we, we board them fur in, but you also cut a, a window, an inspection window and the grader will actually grade that. And that's actually kind of the prized part of that hide is what's in that inspection window. So he can get a good general idea of the quality of that hide through that inspection window. Take a muskrat, for instance. Yep. I remember selling muskrats at auction and they would still sort of open, mm-hmm. they would bend it up to look inside it, to, to look at the back fur. Yeah. Why is a muskrat not just stretched fur side out? I think a lot of it is so they can see the primeness of the pelt. Got it. You know, cause you know how a muskrat, so muskrats, and we'll kind of talk pelt primeness, but you know, the reason that we trap critters in the winter is because that's whenever the, the fur is prime, the pelt is prime. And if you no, ever, it's because you do, it's because uh, you do it between big game hunting and ice fishing. No, <laughs> <laughs> it's because there's a, a month when you might get bored. No, this goes oh. way oh. way back. <laughs> this goes way. They set regulations in Europe like 400 years ago to trapping regulations, mm-hmm. so where you would actually target prime critters. And uh, so, if you ever heard the term a blue pelt. Okay, so blue pelt is essentially kind of an unprimed pelt, uh, early season pelt, or or late. So that's and, and point out. I mean, uh, literally blue. It's blue. Yeah. Like if you ever kill a deer, like an early, if you live in early a state October. where you're allowed to like get rolling in September or something, you skin that deer, and it's like the leather is blue. It's blue. Yep. Yeah. So that's what we call a blue pelt. And what happens is, a lot of people are under the assumption that temperature is what makes that fur prime and that's actually false it's actually based more on daylight hours which has a correlation to temperature obviously so you know as as winter progresses further north you are you're losing daylight quicker than south so the the pelts will generally prime up quicker so So like like the winter uh the hell they call the shortest day of the year winter solstice solstice. yeah it's when yanni goes out and does, does a lot Drags burning log around his house a bunch of times. Tosses lead at people. <laughs> Hits it with an axe and throws lead Molten into a bucket. Lead. All kinds of Latvian things. <laughs> um, when he's doing that, uh, shortest day of the year, like peak primeness. Well, not necessarily. Kind of. No? not ne- Well, because there's other factors too. So, you know, for instance, um, whenever we're talking with coons, they have a rutting season, which is, you know, kind of right now, a couple weeks ago. And we're talking, you know, kind of middle end of January where I'm from. So they will actually go from den to den to den to rut. No different than like a buck will. But what will happen is going from den to den to den, they'll start to get a patch and rub fur on their back. And it'll actually become bald. From squeezing into the holes. From running around so much from den to den to den. 
So I, you've seen I always hear like that they're rubbed. You've seen it where they actually wear their hair out it, squeezing into holes and logs. It will become infected. That they will rub it down raw raw meat from going. I mean, they get crazy. It's just no different than a deer in rut. You'll see, see that. Sir? I haven't seen it. I've seen it worn down. I haven't seen it worn down like raw, yep, raw hide. You know, it'll be scabbed over, and you know that's obviously a not prime pelt. You yeah, know yeah. that you want to trap. So you know, even though there's a season for them, generally you quit trapping then. Yeah. Uh, no, I got to interrupt you real quick. I don't want to. I don't want to establish a rivalry between you and Seth. But there's something <laughs> you need to know about Seth. When Seth was a little boy, he uh, would go down to a fur buyer in in uh. Flesh and stretch raccoons. That's awesome. In high school. Yeah. That was my job. Peace work. Uh, yeah. No, hourly. I can't Hour, No, peace work. Peace work. Peace work. Yep. And how would they give you for one? Not much. It's like three or four bucks. Yeah. Well, that's like that. more than stuff's worth now anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like, I forget what it was. No, it wasn't. Yeah. It didn't seem, well, at the time it seemed like a lot. Oh, I used to peel log home logs for 35 cents a foot. Which at the time was pretty good. Yeah, I wouldn't be able to feed one kid. <laughs> so I wouldn't it? be able to feed one of my kids on that now. <laughs> what was it? a good night then? <laughs> what was a good good night flushing then? Oh man, it all depended because we would sometimes we'd like get behind, freeze a bunch of hides. You know, we'd we'd guys would guys would bring them in either like you know like whole animal or they would bring them in. Skinned out already. Just I just need to flush and put them up. But uh, would you go down and skin the whole ones too? Yeah. Oh, you would. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you get paid man. more for like one that you had to skin, flesh, and put up. Yeah. It, it was like it was like two, two or three bucks to skin it, two or three bucks to flesh it and put it up, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um. But I mean, we used to do. We used to flesh from dark to dark. Some some. Weekends. What's that mean? Just like start early in the morning, just start oh, flushing. Oh, start before it got light out and quit after it yeah. got dark. Yeah. yeah. And what might you do in a day? You know? Do you remember? Oh, man, I don't remember at all. Yeah. More than ten. Oh yeah, yeah, more than ten. Yeah. Yeah, I'd do like ten or so in an evening after school. Hmm. Sometimes more, sometimes less. All depends on what people were bringing in. Going to school all greasy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I was after school. <laughs> um. Yeah. So, anyways, I don't want you. To, I don't want you, you and Seth to have like a little thing now where you like feel like you're at odds with one another. Oh, no, I just I, want you to know you're you're across from a. You're across no, I feel like we're. Former, I feel. I feel like we're brothers. Yeah, yeah you're, you're no. across. <laughs> from a, you're sitting across from a former professional. It's a dying trade. So Seth's only like yeah. Seth's very young, so this isn't that long ago. If I say high school, it's like <laughs> people looked like that. Like, uh, like you know, a lot different back then. <laughs> All right, so go on. And circle back around to the damn bobcats, too. Yeah, you keep getting me distracted. No, so. they go into holes. They rub their hair off. You're talking about, I was trying to make the claim that, like, primeness might be the winter solstice, but you're saying there's other factors that override that. A lot of other variables, yeah. Coyotes, are, you know, their primeness is usually earlier in the season. They'll start to degrade fairly quickly. Um, you know, a lot depends on... I mean, like, his hair, the hair wears out or whatever. Yeah, depending yeah. on where they're at. If they're in, like, a, a open country, you know, where they're not having to, like, push through a lot of brush and stuff, they're going to stay, you know, prime longer where if you're out, you know, west where they're pushing through a bunch of sagebrush and different things like that, that'll slowly wear out that fur. No kidding. Oh, yeah. It, there's a bunch of different variables. Yeah. Hey, uh, tell about the one that happens with beavers in the spring. So what dry, what what sort of ends the season on beavers? 
So beavers will actually start fighting as they come out, depending on if you have ice or not, but they'll start fighting and they'll start biting each other. And so whenever the beavers start, they'll have bite marks on them. Very similar to muskrats will do the same thing. Whenever you start getting a beaver with a bunch of bite marks and chew marks on them, it's time to quit. And that might happen before the season even ends. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No difference in like, like the, our coon season right now. Um, you're, you're going to get coons that are rubbed during season that are still in. So you've got to make that decision to either release them or quit trapping or, you know, whatever. So, you know, let them grow another better pelt. Yeah. And you'll see that, you know, cause, uh, especially on your boar coons, they'll have a big scar patch usually right on the back and it'll be from years and years and years. Really? Oh yeah. It, it's always a, that, man. you'll notice it'll be a darker patch right down the center and it, that's all scars. And whenever you're skinning and fleshing them, you've got to be kind of careful of it too, because that, that's not. It's like all scar tissue. And it's stuff. all scar yeah. tissue. Yeah. Tough. Huh. On a lot of your older big boars, you'll see that. And as you, as the pelt dries, you'll see that kind of brownish, darker brown hue right down the back. And that's, that's from them rubbing year after year after year going like into the Like squeezing dens. into dens. Yep. Just constantly. Yep. They hmm. just go from den site to den site to den site. They, they will run themselves. I mean, you'll see them out in the daytime. They'll get real skinny and just, just, just like a buck in rut. They'll just run themselves stupid. Covering ground. Yep. Okay. Back to the bobcat. Back to the bobcat. So we've got the bobcat and, uh, so we put him oh, on. Oh yeah. You know what we were talking about is why fur in, fur out and all that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what we got distracted on. Yeah. But we put the bobcat on a board yesterday. Um, because this bobcat is going to be, we want him fur out. Um, and that's how they're sold, which you're going to tan it. So it really doesn't matter. Cause on a bobcat, the buyers want to see, they want to see the spots. Yeah. That's your prime, you know, on a coyote, it's kind of that back or the belly, um, a coon, it's the back, but on the bobcat, they really want to see those spots. That's, that's where the money's at. His spotted belly. Yep. The spotted belly. And generally, you know, the clear, more predominant spots are your higher dollar furs so i've heard guys say that if the belly like they'll go by how many fingers wide the belly strip is Mm -hmm. like if you have a belly strip that's like four fingers wide and nice bright clear spots that's a good one yeah now i gotta admit the one you're handling right there is a two finger (laughs) it's got a two finger belly on it yanni just got a pretty nice one oh yeah that was unbelievable bobcat yeah that was a nice one that's like two hands wide belly that was a big Big boy jeez and if you look at them compared to like the Western bobcats versus the Eastern bobcats, you know, these bobcats out here are a lot clearer. Uh, our our Eastern bobcats are just almost brown. Yeah. Totally different. Trash cats. Yeah. Not not worse. <laughs> so, uh, okay. Tell everybody. It's on a split board. It's on a split. Explain all that. So we we boarded this cat on a split board. Um, you, you can board them on a solid board or a split board. I have a preference of a split board simply because with the split boards, we're going to flip this hide anyway, so we're going to have to manipulate them. And the split board just allows us to to remove the animal from the board just a little bit easier. Now, if 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 it needs to be, if it needs to be fur out, why did we start it fur in? Because we want to get that critter to dry. There's a, there's and depending on who you talk to, some guys will what they call skip the flip, which is they will. <laughs> That's a good T-shirt. Right? Yeah. <laughs> skip the flip. Skip the flip. Yeah, but we need to illustrate Hunter. We need to call Hunter Spencer and see if he can capture in an image a man who has simply not flipped it. Skip the flip. Skip the. Fl- There's a lot of guys. Because if that it's do a it. picture of a dude with a bobcat, how do you know if he flipped it or not? It's a hard illustration. 
I, I'm going to think about that. How would you capture that in the illustration? And then it would say skip the flip. But we're going to flip this one. because, And the reason we're going to flip it is we want to make sure that hide is, is good and dry and that we're not going to have any issues with uh, you know molding or, or drying issues. So we boarded this thing fur in on a split board and we've let it sit you know, depending on temperature and humidity, things like that, 12, 16 hours. But that one, because of because of our schedule today, he's been sitting... He's been sitting a little longer. A little longer. So it's going to be a little bit more of a trick. Now, one day I called Stu, and I asked... I, I was doing a Martin, and I had to leave town. I wasn't going to be around to flip, so I didn't know the slogan, skip the flip. And I said, can I skip the flip? <laughs> and he said people do and it's something that you can get away with and that son of a bitch dried on that board i i was i got to where i was thinking about how i was going to try to destroy the board to somehow get my i wanted the martin more than the board and i was like maybe i can split this board and crack it into little pieces and somehow get it out of there and then after much trial and error i eventually got that son of a bitch off but dried on the board when i do them right fur in overnight and then flip it it just falls off just so much easier yeah no different than this so, so. i see you guys got it salted too or had it no salted. a little bit no. of borax oh boy talk about that now phil or sorry not phil you know i don't want phil talking about that <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but but bill that guy <laughs> if phil was named bill he'd know uh yeah explain the borax a little bit a little bit of borax so a lot of people assume use salt for whatever reason. I guess just an old-timey thing. You salt sure, a hide. Yeah, yeah. If you're selling to the fur trade, that's actually, you don't want to use salt. And the reason being is the salt interacts with the hide negatively, whereas the whenever they actually go to tan it, you know, it has a negative impact on the hide. So we use borax, which is just 20-mule team borax. It's just detergent is all what it is. And it just helps us uh, in areas that would be like under the arms, that are not able to have air circulate quite as good. You use a little borax just to help help the drying process. Out. You know, so a trick I learned on Coon Creek Outdoors that I that you, you need to, you need some feedback on is uh, where you live. It's more humid. Yep. So you were talking about you have a block of borax. Yep. Like you let it sit out and it turns into a brick, and you just rub it on. Yeah. And so you have a thing that looks like a bar of soap, but it's a block of borax, and you rub it on. Yep. I was like, man, that's slick as shit. It works great. Yeah. You can't get that here. <laughs> I don't care how long you let that stuff sit in your garage, it will not turn into a block. It's too arid. Put it in the bathroom with you. Take a shower. Let it collect a little bit of moisture, then go stick it outside. That's a good idea. <laughs> you need to make a video. You need to make like an addendum to your video, and then you need to, it needs to pause, and to like you hit a certain button if you're from the arid west. You see me in my bathroom in the shower. <laughs> Come out with a block of borax. So you think I'd be able to get a block of borax if I did that? I mean, I would. You're putting humidity to it. I almost was going to have you send me a block of send borax, block. and I thought it'd get to where I live and dry out and fall <laughs> yeah, apart and blow up. <laughs> turn back into powder. So there's, yeah, there's a lot of good tricks. A, there's not a situation where you'd salt it. No, no. no? The, the only situation if you're going to salt it is if you are going to tan it yourself. So then you're actually going to use, and, and you know, there's a lot of different ways to tan, but essentially what the salt does is really remove all the oils from the hide. And pull all the oils out. But the tanning process that you're going to do at home versus the tanning process that's done commercially is different. So the salt kind of has a negative impact on it in that manner. So. I've heard people describe, I'm curious if you'd agree with this. I've heard people describe home tanning as more of a preservation method 
than like uh than than uh kind of like an archival. I'm not finding the right words, but that that you're, you're talking ne- quality. Yeah, that that it's more like it's it's pretty temporary. A home tan job, like maybe you get ten years out of it, but you're not going to get out of it what you'd get out of it from a commercial tannery. Do you agree with that or not agree? Not with that? necessarily. I think okay. it's all, it's all how much love you put into tanning it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's where a lot of people will fail. A lot has to go into the breaking process, and the way that furs are tanned commercially, they're able to be broken like like garment material. You know, very soft. You know, but home tanning. You know, you can brain tan something, which is what the Indians did. So mm-hmm. there's, I was at a museum yesterday and there's still stuff around from. It's been brain tanned. That, that was, that was brain tanned. That's kind of what I was hearing about brain tanning is that it didn't, um, that like moisture can really be hard on it. You know, it's all in how you, like I said, how you tan it. A lot of the, the brain tanning, uh, involves like a smoking process mm-hmm. to, to waterproof it, keep the bugs out of it. You know, but you're basically just replacing the natural tannins in the hide with some sort of a synthetic material for the majority of your home tanning. So, like, if you've seen the orange bottle or the different acid, I mean, there's a million different ways. Acid tanning, there's some egg white tanning. I mean, you're just... What methods do you do you use? I brain tan and I use the uh, the orange bottle hunters and trappers hide tanning formula. Yeah. Those are my two favorite that I've had a lot of success with. With deer brains, any brains. Really? It's the I believe it's the lanolin. I believe is what it is in the brains. Yeah. Huh. And there's you know. Tell me what all kinds of brains you've used. I've used everything, everything I can get my hands on. Deer deer brains are the easiest you know yeah. to acquire during the season. But there's this kind of a myth, and I, I've found it to be fairly accurate where whatever animal you have, basically their brain is sized accordingly to tan their hide. I've heard that. And I've found that to be fairly accurate. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, which I I just save everything up at the end of the year and mix it all together. and Big old bucket of brains. Big old bucket of brains. I'd like to see that. Big old bucket of brains. Yeah. Don't drink that. No. Um, Okay. Back to the bobcat. Okay. Because then we got to cover off on some stuff. I just want to get to the part where you're flipping it. Okay. And tell people how not to tear it. All right, so this thing's dried on the board for set a number of hours, and it's, uh, I don't know if you can hear it through the microphone, but it sounds almost like dry paper, and that's yeah. kind of what you're going for. You know, you don't want it to be too dry. It's going to be hard to flip, but you also don't want it to be too wet where you're going to have mold issues. So we've got it to that point right now. Oh, you know what, Brody? I got to tell you something. You really he, distract me on this. Well, I'm, but I'm trying to, I'm, <laughs> yeah. but to your credit, because I'm trying to get everything uh, uh, you right. know out. All right. <laughs> for a wall, because that's going to be a wall hanger. Right. Stu turned the ears, which is not something that most like trappers for the commercial market would do, but he turned the ears out of concern for my wall hanger bobcat. You better explain that. All right. So we split the ears. So, yeah, split them. We split the ears. And traditionally, uh, anything from below the ears up in the commercial trade is not used. So generally, you know, fleshing process, different things like that. We don't normally use that. But since you're going to tan it and use it for a wall hanger, we went ahead and split the ears. And basically on, on an ear of, a, of most critters, you have an inner ear kind of in an outer ear. The inner ear is actually what has the cartilage. And on like a coyote, say that's what makes the ears pronounced stand up. And then the outer skin has the fur on it that you see. Mm-hmm. But on a bobcat, there's fur on both sides and you want to keep that. So 
in order to let the tan solution penetrate, and this is just over my years of doing it, if you actually separate the cartilage from the skin in the ear, you're able to let that tan solution kind of penetrate up the ear and ideally save both sides of the ear. And then by doing so, you've actually saved the cartilage as well. So after you get your tan pelt back, your ears still look like ears, basically. They don't yep. look all all wrinkled up, you know, and kind of shriveled up. But I think a way to imagine it is imagine that you're going to cut off your own ear and tan it. Because think about, like, <laughs> like grab your ear, flap, right? You have skin and skin. Yeah. You'd have to get, like, how are you going to, you, you know, you'd want to get in there and split it open so that you were getting each side of the skin to keep your ear properly tanned up. Yeah. And I mean, you know, just from my experience over the years, it just seems like if you don't split the ears, generally that inner part where the cartilage sits, it won't take the tan solution very well. Mm -hmm. And then it'll end up slipping. The fur will slip, which basically just means it, it'll fall off. So yeah, yeah, we tried to do you a favor here and, and split the ears and hopefully whenever it gets tanned, it'll, it'll come out right. So we did that. And now it's time to finally flip this this critter. So I'm going to take it off the board. There's a couple different ways to flip it. And basically, like I said, we've got this thing tube skin. So we want to turn it out outward and we're going to roll it kind of like you would turning a sock inside out. Um, so generally you have a, a lot more tendency to rip the hide if you start from the bottom and go up. But if you turn them from the nose in and kind of push the head in and roll it down, generally that's a safer bet. Uh, to not, not ripping the hide or tearing the hide. You know, a lot has to go on how far you let this thing dry. There's just that fine window uh, in, in flipping the hides that, you know, you kind of need to hit, but I think we'll, I think we'll be okay is there, on this. Is there some critters that their hide tears a lot easier than So, like, others? fox oh, have yeah. really thin skin. Yeah. yeah. Um, there, there's a big number trapper that I, I follow, and he's skipped the flip on foxes for years, you know, uh, he puts them up on wire too, so a lot of wire. So, you know, there's just there's one way to do it, and then there's a hundred other different ways to do it. You know, there's not really one set way, which is which is kind of cool. So, and depending on who you talk to and what part of the country it's, but we're gonna do it this way because it's the way I've always done it. And we're gonna basically start at the nose, and we're gonna just kind of knead that head down through the body, and and pull it through, and then we'll have the uh, have the bobcat fur out, and you'll be able to. Yep. See your cat. So. All right. So Stu Miller, Coon Creek Outdoors, he's going to start turning. Do it as loud as you can because we're going to cover off on our other stuff, and I want people to be able to hear you doing it, and I'll keep people posted on what's going on. Let's hope I don't rip it. <laughs> oh, if you rip it, dude. <laughs> First thing that's going to happen is this show is over. If you rip it, Stu, all you have to do is say, <laughs> just do it yourself next time, <laughs> man. <laughs> I ripped a few in my day. People get pissed. It's like, well. I can imagine. Take, I'll be I'll be livid. Take it to someone else then, or you do hear, it yourself. You ever hear someone so mad that they become uh, apoplectic? That'll be me. I've never heard of that. If Stu rips my bobcat. Uh, all right, so we got to touch off on this. You weren't even here when I was talking about this. What are you? Where are you going? I was going to run to the bathroom quick, but I'll I'll stick around. <laughs> <laughs> talking about your marriage. Oh yeah, I better stick around. Um, am I still officiating? Yeah. Okay. No, we haven't. We haven't found someone else. Okay. Because uh, I, I tell you, if you want to, you did I tell you? To? Oh yeah. Did okay, I tell you good. I was reading up on what I got to do? Very simple to become a minister. No, you didn't tell me, but I listened to the podcast. Okay. We told. 
the listeners. And I had, and a guy was pointing out an interesting thing that you can get married. Um, in Montana, you can get married by proxy. Mm-hmm. So you could have a wedding that you're not at. I didn't realize this. Montana recognizes what's called a double proxy marriage. So both of us don't have to be here. There's a marriage. Yeah, you could get married here where no one shows up. Huh. That, yeah. Well, let me, I'll run that by Kelsey, see what she says. Uh, the guy that wrote, and this is an interesting thing about the, mil- the U.S. military. So the guy wrote, and he's active duty military. We're to the front legs now. Oh, it's yeah. Getting is- interesting. Now, see, it's going to be hard. Phil, do you like it that there's a loud noise in the background? I mean, I think it's great. Okay. Normally, I would hate it, but in this circumstance, I'm wedding. <laughs> well, it, here's what I'm slide. worried about. Here's what I'm worried about is how he's going to get those legs inverted. We'll get it. Sounds like paper crinkling. Yeah. Oh, like, you know, guy. This guy's active duty military, and I didn't realize this, but it makes sense. The military does not recognize engagements. In terms of like shuffling you around, so you could get sent somewhere else. Then. Yeah, you could be like, "Oh, we're engaged." Like, that doesn't matter to them. Yeah, no, no paperwork has Rick, been signed. Rick could probably anything. speak to this a little bit. Uh, um, it's true. Yeah, that's definitely. So true. he and his woman <laughs> were getting a PCS, a permanent change of station, where they'd be sent to different military bases. But they were both gone on. They were both gone uh, depl- on deployment. So neither of them's there, and they got married anyway. Double proxy. Then they were able to move back to the same location because then the military recognized their union. Isn't that a happy ending, Phil? That's yeah, great because you, got, you get ending. to skip all the bullshit and just have a party later. Yeah. I don't want to call you out, Seth, but you don't seem like you're too warm to that idea. Well, listen. It's, Yeah. Kelsey's not going to be warm to that idea. Hmm. Do you guys have one of those little registries going? No. You can do that? A registry? No. I think you should get one going. We should advertise it on the podcast. Walleye boat. Oh, you know what else we're going to advertise? Bunch of jigs. Stu's single. We oh. got to get to that to, to find Stu more girlfriends. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. So we're not doing the registry thing. We're, we're, we're saying like if you, if, you feel, if you feel like you want to give us something, just throw us a little cash because... <laughs> There ain't no, there's no registry out there that's going to like f- knock a wall out in my house. I got it. So you just like, you just want money. Yeah. No, that's great. You okay. don't need China or anything I don't, I don't, like I don't need like a KitchenAid mixer or something like that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Is Kelsey going to listen to this podcast and hear you throw her under the bus so savagely like that? No, she is on, she's totally on board with this. No, I, I, I was going uh, about the, uh, the double proxy. Oh, thing. yeah. She ain't going to like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in Florida right now. We're Should in, we I don't pause, know what, pause and give an update? Oh, here? yeah, okay. We're going to give a Bobcat update. Look at that. You know, I should have brought my fur brush, my fur comb. Because right now you, he's the way. Can, can I see it for a minute? Yeah, oh, you know what? Spe- while we're speaking of updates, I just want to update our listeners that the kayak is sold. So. Oh. No. Man, tell, <laughs> tell about what the guy that bought it gave us. Oh, yeah. So the, the guy that bought the kayak. I, should, I forget his name, man. I'll look it up. Um, Did you have a lot of people wanted the kayak? Yeah. Um, the the guy that bought the kayak was he's active duty military. He's, he's up at stationed up in Great Falls, and he gave Steve and I 105 millimeter uh, shell casings, which my son is very interested in. <laughs> that uh, 
<laughs> were fired on a deployment in, I think you said like Afghanistan yeah, or, yeah, yeah. or Iraq or Syria. We I can't tell what to do with it. For It'd be like a hell of an ashtray or so. I got. I don't know what I'm going to do with mine. Yeah, it's here, sweet. Here comes the front legs. Oh, is he doing the front legs now? Okay, the bobcat is now revealed. We can see the hide, the beautifully split ears, and he is trying to do the final thing of get the legs inverted. Which is tough because you left them so long whenever you skinned them. So we're trying to pull them through. Like I left them too long. Well. But that's the difference between a wall hanger and a, yeah. and a commercial trade bobcat. Yep. Very exciting. Uh, in Florida, see, I don't know what the weather's going to be. I, I want to cover off on a news bit, but the problem is this this isn't going to release right away. It's going to be a couple days, so the cold snap might be over. But there was a national cold snap. Um, still going on right now. And in Florida, they, 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 they're releasing warnings about the iguanas falling from trees. So Florida's full of uh, got got an invasive iguana problem. We actually had some of that iguana fat, and uh, Kevin Gillespie made us iguana fat cookies, which were wonderful, like sugar cookies with iguana fat. Um, and a guy wrote in how these frozen iguanas fall from trees and get stunned, and they're just laying around on roads and sidewalks. We have a bunch of pictures of just iguanas that fell from outer space, laying around. And he's kind of wondering about um, if there's like an ethical dilemma to picking up and an, uh, to, to dispatching iguanas that are in such a compromised position. Kind of like shooting caribou in a river or something. Like, like shooting that. caribou in a river or whatever. Shooting fish in a barrel. Yep. Yeah. Uh, we're also thinking about whether or not this falls under the umbrella of chetiquette. I feel it does not. What do you think, Chester? No, it's more of an ethics thing. Just a moral dilemma, which Corinne... What did she write up there? Chethical? Yeah. Is it chethical? Is it chethical? I mean, like I said, it's a moral dilemma. I think if you knew how good that fat was for making cookies, and if you like eating them, why the heck not? They want them out of there. Um, But this guy's moral dilemma is like some of these are too small to eat. So... Like he doesn't want to damage the resource. Like he doesn't want to damage the resource. He doesn't like killing things that he doesn't eat. You know, so so he's weighing out: Do I serve the the goal of eliminating the iguana from Florida, or do I serve my personal ethic, mm-hmm. which is don't kill stuff you're not going to eat? Which trumps which? Man, I mean, it sounds like these guys really have a problem. Um. Are you clear on what the problem is? is Just anybody, a, what they is, do a lot of burrowing and like seawalls and house foundations mm-hmm. and things. They do? Like, yeah, that's the problem. Yeah. It's not like a biological issue. I don't think so. Like I don't think they're eating native bird eggs and stuff like that. That I that I know of. Man, but, you think they? Yeah, would. you think they would be. Yeah, see, I you thought, think, they, I you thought they were like doing the, something to native. That's possible, but I, what I've heard a lot is like they're doing damage to structures and sure. things like that. We have a headline in front of us. Cold weather could bring frozen iguanas this weekend. It's just like a picture of some iguanas just taking a quick nap. Um, But yeah, I think like if you take the ones you're going to eat, you know, do a little, little both there. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I would think so, man. 
But here's the thing I could weigh out. Let's say I really developed a taste for iguanas down there. Okay. And I had like a little yard. And now and then I'd get me a big fat iguana. Yeah. And I was watching some small ones lurking around. And I knew that, if, I don't know how, what their life expectancy is, but I knew that they'd get big. And then I'd have like, I've never eaten the iguana. I've eaten their fat, but I've never eaten them. Let's say I loved it. I could see a situation where one would fall from a tree, a little one would fall from a tree, and I would resuscitate it and warm it up in order to grow it big because I loved iguana meat. Here's, and not and not go out and do what I was supposed to do, which is go out and kill it. Here's the thing. I don't know if it's legal or not. Why don't you just make a little iguana cage, take those iguanas. Start feeding them. Start mm-hmm. raising them yourself. It's like Get rabbits. them out of the wild. I just thought of a real, I just remembered a real world version of what I'm talking about. Not that this isn't the real world, but a personal version. You know how lake trout um, got into Yellowstone Lake? And started to, they're real hard on cuts, not bull trout. Yeah, the Yellowstone cutthroats. Okay. Yeah. So someone thought it was a good idea to let some lake trout go in Yellowstone Lake, which is in Yellowstone National Park, and it's the head of the Yellowstone River. And it was was very detrimental to the native cutthroat, Mm -hmm. the East Slope cuts, correct? I believe it was the Yellowstone Yellowstone cut. The actual Yellowstone cutthroat. Which is like a more of a pumpkin-colored, orangish- Yellowish cutthroat. Got it. Um, they at a point made it that you were not allowed to turn back a live lake trout. It was a mandatory kill situation. No, like like catch and release became illegal. It might still be today. I don't know. I had a friend. I don't want to tell what his name is. I'll tell you. His, I don't want to tell you his last name because he was a lawbreaker. His name was Mike. Uh. And Mike would always go and fish there. And he really liked, he made like smoke lake trout. He made lake trout sushi rolls. He was big time into eating lake trout. He would turn back the small ones and would be, and and wouldn't want to hit it too hard. And he was very nervous about what he called damaging the resource and just wasn't buying the whole thing about, he was like, I love those fish. I hope they stay there forever. Yeah. That was his take on it. I mean, in an area like that, man, though, like there's not many places in the world that have Yellowstone cutthroat. Um, and there are a lot of places in the world that have lake trout. Like you got to get them out of there. And no, I know it's almost impossible, but like. They, they've made some progress. Yeah. So Chester, uh, you know your idea about how you're going to keep them and fatten them up? Yeah. I was saying, I don't know if it's legal or not. No. Oh, yeah. Well. Corinne um, uh, just pointed out here that you would be in violation of the law. And, and th- th- so if, if you know how everybody has the joy of cooking in their house, the cookbook, the joy of cook- cooking? Mm-hmm. It, I have one that's so old, there's information in it about how to fatten a possum. Really? Yeah. That you've caught a possum and how to fatten it and like... Hmm. Put it on a good diet for consumption. Really? Yeah, that's, that's not in there anymore. That's it's not. No. <laughs> well, that's if pretty. You buy cool, one though. now. It's not in there. That's pretty awesome that you have that one. Uh, so Chester has this idea, like, okay, a little dinky, little dinker falls out of the tree. You're trying to do the right thing by law, and you say to yourself, "Well, I feel bad letting it back out because I'm supposed to kill it. It's not big enough to eat. I'm gonna warm him up, resuscitate him, pen him, and fatten him." Which is illegal. Turns out. So 
Florida has a list of like stuff you can't have. It's Florida's prohibited species list. And it has, it had 16 new, and it had recently added 16 new high risk non-native reptiles. You're not allowed to have in your possession. The Argentine black and white tegus. What the hell is that? I think they're like monitor lizards. I think you're not allowed to have a a tegu. You can look it up, Brody. Yeah. Can't have one of those in Florida. You can't have a green iguana. You can't have a Nile monitor lizard. You cannot have a Burmese python. Which is a big issue. Yeah, they got no shortage of them. Dog. Yeah, they look like a monitor lizard. They're, pr- they're pretty big. You cannot have a reticulated python. You cannot have a green anaconda. Hmm. Uh, I mean, it makes sense. You know, they that's how they kind of got there, right? <laughs> and was, all of them can survive in Florida. I was years ago... In South America, and um, and I was with uh, a Makushi, a guy who was Makushi from the Makushi tribe, and we were standing there looking at a green anaconda. It was probably, I don't know, 14, 15 feet long. Jesus. This your bullet ant time? Nope. Nope, different time. He was telling me, I wanted to, it was just sitting there. I mean, you could walk right up to it. And I was asking him about, is it okay if we kind of like jab it with a stick to see what it does, right? And he was pointing out to me, like their, in their mythology, he was saying, if I touch that anaconda with the limb of my bow, it will die a very painful death that takes about 45 minutes. But you can touch it with another stick and that's fine. But you can't touch it with a bow limb. Just a bow limb? Or is it, was it like weapon? Nope. He said, if I touch it with my bow limb, it will kill it. Very Hmm. painful. Really? Why? Yeah. Yeah. There's like a limit. I mean, it was just part of their mythology, and there was like a limit to how much we could communicate about it, but I gathered that much. Can't touch them with a bow limb. Can't touch a green anaconda with a bow limb. You didn't Mm. say, try it. No, and I didn't, and I didn't say like bullshit. I just I thought that was a great little you know a great little thing. Hey man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. 
$45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to, okay? It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home, well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying. I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. Just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater. Make sure you use code MeatEater to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. Oh, did you get one leg? Oh, yeah. Stu got one leg. He's close to getting the other leg. The bobcat is nearly inverted. Then it's going to be exciting because it goes back onto the board. However, here's another ethics question. This is that this is this seems like an ethics question, but it ends up being a practical question. This guy works for a small town police department in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem region. And he's, he mentions that they are, at the time of this writing, in an ongoing CWD management hunt. FWP, he's saying, the, the State Fish and Game Agency, is allowing antlered bucks to be harvested on this hunt. A lot of this guy's buddies believe the hunt should be, since it's meant to lower the population, to slow the spread of CWD, he's like, why is it that you can kill bucks? It seems like you'd be killing does, because if you want to lower a deer population, the way to lower it is killing does. Like, bucks doesn't, like, have a long, killing bucks doesn't have a long-term impact on deer numbers. Killing does does, because you kill her, and you kill every baby that she'll ever have. I would point out, if this gentleman really wants to get into understanding this, 
there's quite a bit of data that suggests that uh, CWD is more readily transmitted by bucks. They move around a bunch. They travel too damn much. Yep. I think there's a couple reasons. They're, they're, they want any deer eliminated, right? And to convince people to hunt whitetails in February in Montana or January, you know, they might be it's more inclined. Yeah. Sweet, you sweeten the deal a little yeah. bit by yeah. letting you get a buck. And then I, I remember some stuff with Doug looking at the, uh, you know, all the th- like CWD is like COVID a little bit where the information changes so fast. Right. It's hard to keep hip to what, like what's actually the, the current sort of uh, academic consensus. But at a time it was that young bucks dispersed more. They like young bucks left their population, dispersed farther distances and were more likely to be bringing CWD into d- introducing CWD chronic wasting disease into new herd yep. groups. I read something recently about that though, where in a study where they studied a certain amount of, a, you know, let's say they studied 15 bucks and, and 20 does, the does traveling, you know, five miles and the bucks were traveling like six miles on average. So it wasn't a crazy difference between the two, but, Want to say that again now? I was just saying that the, like they've done studies. I was reading a, a recent study where they took a set number of deer and studied them how far they go and the distance between how far the does traveled and the distance between how far the bucks traveled was not that oh, much that right? difference. Huh. Um, but that was just one article. So, <laughs> uh, you guys got a, you guys got the appetite for one more, um, I guess two more etiquette, two more ethics etiquettes. People looking for feedback. Sure. Your dog kills a deer. What then? <laughs> what then? My friend's dog killed a deer not too long ago. Well, this guy this guy was asking, like, you know, should you eat it? Should you do whatever? I think he did the right thing. He said he called the the local authorities, the game warden. Yep. Which yeah. is a good thing to do. And then from there, you know, this it said the warden determined it did not have CWD, which is, you can't really necessarily yeah, tell I'm not unless sure you how. test it. Um, so I'm not quite sure there, but like. Well, he, because he, he, okay, in this case, the warden did a little necropsy and saw that it had two busted legs. Mm-hmm. And that's why the dog was able to get a hold of it. And that's why it looked So sickly. it'd be like, what are the, uh, yeah, that's why it looked sickly. Yeah. Like, so like. What are the odds it had CWD and then broke two legs from a car hitting it? Yeah. But th- what this guy seems to be trying to do is, is like, say what his dog did is not, like, there's not a problem with it. Like, that's what it seems to be getting at. Well, I mean, also. you don't want your dogs obviously killing deer, but once in a blue moon, you just never know what's going to happen. So I think calling the warden and then if this deer had two broken legs, he's also asking, what should I do with the meat? I would say if the warden lets you take it and eat it, eat it. But if it's got two broken legs, you might want to check for infection and stuff first as well. Um, you know. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. It is an inter- interesting conundrum because a lot of times you know, on public land, you're supposed to have your dog under control. So if you're on public land somewhere and your dog kills a deer, you might, I mean, you might find 
whether you self-report or someone else reports you, your ass might be in trouble with the state. There are places where mm-hmm. if you're out hunting deer and you see a dog chasing deer, you can shoot the dog, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's definitely places like that. Um, yeah, it, it's pretty easy to train your dog to not mess with deer. You know, I've had a couple bird dogs and you can train them just not pay attention to those deer. When our dog chases a deer, it comes back knowing it's in trouble. Yeah. Like it can't help itself. Yeah, it's like it's like I know I did. Like I did it. I know I shouldn't have done it. And they come back like they know they're going to get in yeah. trouble, but they just couldn't help themselves. Yep. So I think a proper etiquette is just uh, train your dog and not mess with deer. But if it does, I think that yeah, being able to salvage deer, sure, hope yeah. you be able to do it. Yeah. Call your call your game warden. That's probably the first step if you're dealing with any of that stuff. Here's another one. This guy's writing in. Uh, this guy lives in a state, Virginia, where you're allowed to hunt turkeys with a rifle. In the spring he says, I believe rifles should be outlawed like it is in Maryland in most states. You can't quite say most states because a lot of states where you can kill a, a turkey with a rifle in the fall. Mm-hmm. He's got friends that kill turkeys at 200 yards with varmint rifle setups. What do you think about that? I just don't... <sighs> Where's the fun? I just want to say this. I'm not talking about laws and not laws yeah. and all that. Spring turkeys is meant to be something you do with a shotgun. There's there's a purpose to it. The calling, the getting them to come in. Yes. And, and we, we used to bushwhack turkeys. In the spring, I don't think there's any reason to shoot a uh, turkey with a rifle in the spring. One thing, it's like, it's dangerous. Yeah, you got in a lot spring. of dudes out yeah. in the woods. Yeah. You got dudes in camo out in the woods making turkey noises, sitting against trees. Yeah. Trying to sit close, to, trying to be close to turkeys. Yeah. When I was very young, you could hunt, I'm pretty sure you could hunt turkeys with a rifle in Pennsylvania in the spring. Oh, really? Really? Mm-hmm. I know you can in they the fall. They changed it, yeah. Well, especially yeah. with decoys getting better and better every year yeah. decoy, you know dude i yeah i like i look at my own decoy and go <laughs> oh my god oh sorry much is my i mean decoy. If, in the fall in five minutes later, i'm like holy shit oh, oh this is my decoy in the fall if i was out hunting deer and had a turkey tag in my pocket i'd probably shoot without a doubt like, yeah i think it's different and and what, what's interesting for people people to understand here is that in a lot of in states where you are allowed to kill turkeys in the fall with a rifle you're often allowed to kill females right yes but they're also not i mean they're spending time out in those open areas in the fall, but I feel like spring, it's predictable. You know those birds are going to be out on strut zones and be out in the open, so that's like another thing that's just makes it easier picking in the mm-hmm. spring to shoot them. And why I don't I don't personally like that or care I just it. think if you're like sitting there in your truck and there's a turkey 150 yards away out Strutting in the field in the yeah, spring, yeah, yeah. strutting <laughs> in the field, and you decide to take a couple rips at it with your 22-250, it's like... I don't, it feels very dangerous to me because you don't know if there's some camoed up dude and his kids sitting back there. Yep, 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 yep. It just takes the fun right out of that spring turkey hunt, too. Well, I heard a story one time, and, and I, I believe the story I heard, that in, so it was a time when Florida, you were allowed to hunt turkeys in the spring with a rifle, okay? And a lot of turkey hunters felt that it just was not a good idea. You got flat country okay you get people out in camel with decoys like it's like a safety issue and they even went to they they, they they took the time to go to the gun community and be like this is not like 
This is a safety turkey issue. Let's not make this like a gun gun right issue. This is a safety turkey issue. And it got turned into a like gun rights gun rights thing. It got turned into a gun rights yeah. issue when they were they, and I remember someone telling me who was on the side of not being able to rifle hunt turkeys that they always felt a little bit disappointed that they couldn't get it framed outside of that the discussion about it. You know, that it was more like a, I just don't want to get shot. Yeah. There By was a center a, fire rifle. Yeah. There was that uh, mm. one video that went viral a couple of years ago with that. The two there was two young guys turkey hunting and they were filming it and I think they were working a bird on the edge of a big opening and in the footage you just see like the all the dirt get kicked up someone shot with like a 243 their decoy and they were on the opposite end and it blew into the tree next to them and bark went flying and everything really? and they immediately jumped up it was a couple of years ago but it went viral but I'm sure you can find it on YouTube but it was guys shooting at a decoy with a centerfire rifle and they were if he would have been a foot or even six inches offset, he would have hit one of those guys and mm. killed him. So, mm. yeah. I've yeah. seen videos like that. Guys shooting a goose decoy. Sean, you might have seen something like that. But uh, shooting a, shooting goose decoys with center fire rifles, just like, you know. Totally illegally. Yeah, totally. There's nowhere you're allowed to do that. Yeah. Well, New Zealand, you can do that. I killed a, <laughs> I, <laughs> can. I killed a Canada goose in New Zealand with a seven millimeter rim mag. Huh. Yeah, they're kind of like a guan. Right in the noggin. There. That's a good shot. Yeah, it was, yeah wonderful shot. <laughs> uh, all right, bro, are you ready for your book report? Oh, how's Bobcat? That's ready to be boarded. I wish we had our fur comb with us, man. Snap it. You got more room over there. Snap it real hard. Set all the fur. Snap it hard a couple of times. Uh, you ready for your book report, Brody? Yeah, my article report. Um... So there's been a push to delist grizzlies from the endangered species list. Uh, from both Montana Governor Gianforte and Wyoming Governor Mark Gordon. So uh, to give some background, uh, grizzly bears were put on the ESA in, I think, 1976, something yeah, like that. Something like there that. was like 150 of them left. Unless it has th- uh, threatened, not, not endangered. Yeah, there's about 150 of them left in the 70s, 136, in the GYE, the, the thing that Steve hates saying. No, um, no, I don't know. I don't, I don't, no, I'm, I'm somewhat okay with that. You're okay with the greater Yellowstone ecosystem? Okay. A little, a little bit. Okay. Anyway, uh, fast forward to current times and the estimates vary, right? Like minimum is 700. A a new uh, population study model that Wyoming used places them over a thousand. But either way, the uh, recovery goal was, I believe, 500 bears in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, which was met, you know, 20 years ago or so. so there's there's been these off and on pushes to get them off the list. Wyoming uh, Governor Mark Gordon is petitioning the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to get them removed. Again, I said same things going on in here in Montana, and uh, you know it, it's a, this back and forth fight that never seems to end. No, it'll, it 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 doesn't. Yeah, it it's just nonstop, and. Uh, I was interviewed for an article for Fox News Digital, um, and and uh, apparently they think I'm a grizzly bear expert. They also interviewed uh, Wyoming governors, Wyoming Governor uh, Gordon, 
was quoted pretty heavily in the article. Um, and they quoted, what is her name? Andrea Zaccardi from uh, a Center for Biological Diversity. They always have names like that, you know, that, that make them sound like they're something other than that what they are. Yeah, yeah. Which is like, you know, animal rights, anti-hunting group. Um, the most interesting thing I think she said... Well, she said a couple of things that are interesting. There is no science to back the claim that grizzlies no longer need protection, meaning they I should. Don't, the, I don't understand what that means. I, I don't know, but I mean, there's plenty of science because they're way past the the stated recovery goals. Um, and that, that's such a such a subjective statement too, because like sure. to her, grizzlies will always need protection, no yes. matter what. Like yeah. they could be everywhere. And. Uh, she also says, of course, um, this outrageous request from my Wyoming's governor is the latest attack on animals like grizzly bears by states that see them as little more than targets for trophy hunters. Oh, come on. Um, I need another push pin, Stu. I, I, I brought them in here, but I don't know what... You know, it's just like absolutely untrue. Um, Here's, here, we've covered this so many times. Yeah. I even wrote an op-ed in the New York Times about this the last time they were trying to do it. Yeah. yeah. The last thing the states are going to do that's what they, yeah. The state, Wyoming and Montana, are not going to lobby their asses off for decades to get state <laughs> management of grizzlies back in order to then really quickly kill them all and get them back. Get them on driven the, back <laughs> onto the endangered species. Yeah. The whole point is trying to get them recovered and off the list. Right. right. And, the, and they're like, they're just like, they're like rubbing their hands like, ooh, the minute I can get them off the list, I'm going to put them back on the list again. Yeah, and and let's say ridiculous. Wyoming or Mon, Montana, let, let's say they get taken off the list and, and a hunting season gets approved. The number, they're going to be so careful with the number of tags that they issue for these bears. That's It's going to have absolutely zero impact on the, like... Did you know how many long, tags the last go-around? You know how many tags Idaho is going to issue? One, oh, right? Tag. Yeah. And tag. Wyoming, I think, was a total of low twenties, yep. maybe. In Montana, I thought at the time, and I don't. Uh, there's a different administration now, so I think we'd have a different approach. I thought it was a little bit chicken shit. Yeah, and and you know, in a decision that was coming from people who I admire, just like an area yeah. where I disagreed with them, is they were going to sit it out. Yep. Obviously, sitting it out because they didn't want to wade into the right. They didn't want to wade into the social. Yeah. Yeah. I respected Wyoming fishing game for how they just, I mean, they knew it was going to, they were going to take a lot of flack and heat for everything. And I think they did a great job on how they handled it. Uh, oh, I, I and, and that bummed me out that FWP kind of, I don't know. But, the, but I mean, basically the, the gist of the article here is, and we've said this before, the point of the endangered species list is not to keep them on the list forever. It, it's to, recover them, get them off the list, turn over management to the states. And these groups like this just use lawsuits to like postpone things and delay things and keep them on the list, you know, potentially forever. So that's where we're at. Montana and Wyoming are trying to, and Montana, it's the, the Northern continental divide population that they're trying to get delisted. Yeah. What winds up happening with this I mean, like I said, we've we've covered the dickens out of this. What ends up happening um, around grizzly delisting, around wolf delisting, is you have two situations where we had species that were legitimately imperiled, 
Like wolves are legitimately imperiled at a time. Um, grizzlies were legitimately imperiled, and they needed at that t- they, they they needed protections, and they put protections in place. And you in in the different you know stakeholders and this come together, and they're like, okay, what does recovery look like, right? And people agree on like, well, if we had this many of this, that many of that, living in this many places, we would accept that that was like recovery. At which we'll move on to the next problem, right? Um, what happens is people really kind of like get used to there being no hunting for these animals. And later when recovery objectives are met and hunting might be resumed, people just, they get where they just cannot accept that. Yeah. And so the way these things get held up in court, no one comes and argues that there aren't, like no one's going to argue in court that there aren't enough of them. They're going to argue in court weird little, you know, like technical issues. Yeah. Yeah. Be like, oh, you did a, you did a, um, you did a, a study, but did you consider the potential impacts of white bark pine blister rust? Yeah, and they'd be anything. like, well, no, we didn't fully consider the impacts of white bark pine blister rust. So then a judge, and it's always that it's always a judge in Missoula because it, it always winds up in that district, and a judge in Missoula then throw out the whole thing. Yeah, uh, based on a technicality. Yeah, and, and, why, and they, they're not—they're never arguing the main point. Yeah, and, uh, and, and another thing that kind of never comes up is that there's like, like take the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Like you can't have bears every grizzlies everywhere. There's only so many places that can support them, and so in the GYE, there's like a finite number of grizzlies that that place can support, and then they start moving out into like the urban uh, wild interface, like around here in Bozeman and they get in trouble and then they get shot for getting in a dumpster. Um, there's like a carrying capacity there and yeah. you can't have bears running around in. Golden Gate Park used yeah. to have yeah. grizzlies. I wish they were everywhere. Sure. But I have a it, high tolerance. It's just not possible. But I do, yeah. The other part of this that gets really technical is is people – Instead of saying like like if you're gonna like what is the entirety of grizzly bear range? The entirety of grizzly bear range is, um, basically the hundredth meridian and westward, like everything. Yeah. If you're if you're like west of the Big Bend in the Missouri, um, you're in grizzly bear habitat. So people are like, eh, it's not really plausible that we're going to cover bears across the entirety of the American West. So let's pick adequate areas where they could feasibly be. And then when one of those areas is full, you delist the area. And people are always using, they're always attacking that logic. Well, we right. can't recover them everywhere. But you know what I always point out? Elk are only recovered across what? 14% of their native yeah. range? Yeah. How come no one says that about elk? Elk aren't recovered in Illinois, but you can hunt them in Utah. Yep. Why would someone not say we haven't recovered elk across the entirety of their range? You shouldn't be allowed to hunt elk. Yeah, they should be an endangered species in Illinois. By their logic, yeah. yeah. It should be that no one in Utah should be able to hunt an elk because Illinois doesn't have them yet. Yep. They need to hire us to do these arguments. I like it that Brody gets um you're such a that that from doing these book reports and stuff that you get to go on the news and talk about it. Yeah, man. It was fun. Uh, but you know what bugs me is they never interview a damn biologist for these articles, like a, a, a from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or from a state game agency. 
Did you point that out to him? I did. I said he should talk to some of those people. Did, did you ma- say, like, <laughs> oh, you shouldn't talk to me, you should talk to them? I said, I am not a grizzly bear expert. I have an opinion. You should talk to a grizzly bear expert. Yeah, you know what it might be is that they're not going to get a fiery... Right. They're not going to get yeah. a fiery opinion yeah. out of, the, out of like a like a grizzly bear expert isn't going to give them a fiery opinion. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. they, they always have to be careful what they say. <laughs> yeah. They had to get a raging hothead like Brody Henderson. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. My... <laughs> Brody, smoke coming out of his ears yeah. all the time. All right, Sean, you ready? You bet. Sean's duck report. Yeah, Lay it so... Out. You have an assignment. You got an, We gave you an assignment, right? Yeah, you did. Last, last time we did a duck report, you had brought up that you wanted... Uh, age demographics to be discussed. Yeah, like what's an old-ass duck? Mm-hmm. And you had referenced a Sandhill crane you'd shot when you were in Texas that you said you believed was 17 years old. And to be fair, I called Dr. Chris Nikolai from Delta Waterfowl about this because age demographics gets pretty complex. Um, and there's a lot to it. But... For starters, um, he told me to go look at the USGS website that ha- they have a they have a tool called the Longevity Records of North American Birds, and this tool allows you to look up all the all the band reporting and the age of those birds that are rep- reported, and it's not just waterfowl; it's kind of everything. It's got snow buntings and sparrows, you name it. Pretty much anything they can report um, on how old some of these birds live, it's on there. For example, I did look up a snow bunting, which, by the way, the oldest one reported was eight years and nine months old. Um, anyway, I also went ahead and looked up Sandhill Crane, since you had referenced shooting one 17 years old. The oldest Sandhill Crane was 37 years and three months old. Jeez. Damn. And, <laughs> which is so old. And like it was banded way in... way older than Seth. Yeah. Not way older, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you would have been in first grade how when old, Seth was born. How old can parrots live? I'm just thinking about birds in general, but yeah, they but, go... Yeah, because they're like eight. I remember I had a girlfriend whose mom had a gray parrot, and she had to like have a will about what was going to happen to the parrot after she died. Yeah, those things last forever. <laughs> But that's living in a cage. Yeah, yeah. That's true. Because mm-hmm. what happened to this? Tell everybody what happened to this crane here. Oh, man. What happened to this crane is sad. So it was banded in Florida in 1982. And what finally got it was it got hit by a car in Wisconsin. Scotty. Probably, uh, like, probably coming home from the bar. <laughs> yeah, Chester probably hit it coming home from the bar. All hopped up on cheese curds. Right in Sheboygan. And uh, <laughs> Double bubbles. You know, everyone talks about hitting deer in Wisconsin, but nobody talks about hitting sandhill cranes. 37 years old. Super old. So then I went ahead and looked up. I, I went real down the rabbit hole of looking up pretty much every species I could. Uh, looked up like blue geese and snow geese, which the oldest blue goose was 30 years old and eight months. Oldest mallard was 27 years and seven months. Is this is that off banding data too? Mm-hmm. Yep. So these are all, and Chris Nikolai did bring this up as well. All these are based on either found dead or hunter harvest, shot and removed bands. These are not 
uh, recapture data. So Nikolai has had birds where they catch them in rocket nets, you know, 30, 35 years later, and they're, they're putting third or fourth set of bands on birds that are still alive. Yeah, like all these birds that we're looking at, all these ages, like this mallard that's twenty almost 28 years, a lesser snow that's 27 and a half years. These are things that um, they didn't die of old age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these these ones died of getting shot. So there's a blue winged teal there. that got banded in Saskatchewan and got shot in Cuba. Yeah, that's twenty three years cool. later. That's crazy. It's pretty cool. By like Castro. <laughs> say, that sounds like a that could be like a real life story. It's yeah, amazing. So Cause you look at a deer, a like you see time. a deer and a duck, and you have so much more empathy for a deer. At least I, you know what I mean? It's got eyelashes and everything. They're like, mm-hmm. you could fit seven deer lives inside of a duck. Yeah, it's crazy. It's you don't look, you, when you see a duck on a pond, you don't think like, oh, there's something that's 25 years old. No, definitely not. Those wild turkeys. Like, <laughs> God, they live a long time. Oh, yeah. Wild turkeys. <laughs> like, dude, I'm lucky to get, become two. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, though, where these numbers or these ages really become wild is when you start calculating what the average age of waterfowl is. And oh, like when you get down to what's actually probably going to happen to a duck? What's actual. So the numbers that Dr. Nikolai had given me to work with are 70% survival rate year over year on Drake Mallards and 60, 60% on Hen Mallards. Those are not exact numbers, but they're close and they flesh out the thought experiment here. Um I'll also come back to the why there's a difference between drake and hen survival rate. But if so if you start with 100 of each, you know, year 1 you get down to 70 drakes and 60 hens, by year 2 you're at 49 drakes and 36 hens. So now you're below 50 half are dead, so there's your average age. Um your average age for a duck is 2 years for a drake mallard and not even 2 years for a hen mallard. So it makes a 27-year-old mallard that much more impressive. The hens live shorter because they just, are they getting so beat up from, you know? Yeah, that's what I was wondering is why hens. I was thinking maybe because of they're sitting on nests and getting eaten while they're on nests. I don't mm-hmm. know. Yep. So, so Sean, you're I'll saying cover... that's the average then? Yeah, the average age Man, is... So 27 years. Imagine the attrition rate of friends. You go through a lot of friends in that if you're that mallard that made it to 27 years. <laughs> oh, <laughs> how many friends have come and gone? Yeah, how is it that like you, do you remember in Sand County Almanac uh in Sand County Almanac uh when he's doing this stuff with the chickadees? Mm-hmm. Like he's like catching a chickadee, Aldo Leopold. Mm-hmm. This is in the 20s. He's like catching chickadees. He made up like a little chickadee trap and he's like putting a band on chickadees and you know, they all just die. But there's one that just never makes a mistake. And he gets it year after year after year after year at the same bird feeder. Oh, I don't remember that part of that book. Yeah. But that's and everyone wild. else just gets dusted yeah, off. Imagine but somehow it. he like he doesn't. <laughs> he's like very special. 
Oh, I wonder what the odometer would be on a 27-year-old mallard. <laughs> oh, the miles he's put on? Yeah. Oh, Sean, that's a good one for your book report, dude. Okay. I'll start. Uh, you know, there's uh, some real cool GPS work being done by a group called Osborne Labs. I'll uh, see what the highest odometer they've got on a GPS tracker is right now. That'd be cool. Yeah, that'd be really cool. So where that survival rate gets even more nuanced, right, is that that's based on pretty much a bird going from year one to year two and then year two to year three, so to speak. That's not counting when they're in the egg or even once they've hatched and are going through, you know, the whole process of growing up to be old enough to fly. So Chris gave me some even more staggering numbers that make you wonder how we even have any ducks to hunt to begin with. <laughs> like how there's any around at all. Yeah, it's amazing that there's even ducks. So right now, a good nest success is 0.15 or 15%. So 15 eggs even ever hatch out of 100 eggs laid. Hmm. Then from, then from like those Stu 15, is not catching enough raccoons. Oh, yeah. So that's that's the real end of the story here. Um, so if 15 eggs hatch, half of those will die before they ever get to old enough to fly, which brings you down to, you know, seven and a half ducks. Out of 100, then, eggs, out of 100 eggs that hit the ground. Mm-hmm. And then 40% won't make it through that first fall, roughly. So you get to about... After that first fall, you got about three ducks out of a hundred eggs. If you're and then some good. duck went on and lived then twenty five <laughs> years, twenty seven. So yeah, I'll circle back to the hen and drake survival rate thing, and we already kind of touched on it. But the reason that hens have a lower survival rate than drakes, especially right now, is nest predation. If drakes, you know, drakes don't have to go sit in grassland. They don't have to risk, um, risk getting jumped on on a nest. Yeah, he can hang out out in the middle of some big ass lake. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And what that's led to the last thirty or forty years, they've really noticed it since the late nineteen eighties. Is we've seen a population wide change in the sex ratio. We have more drakes than hens, and not by just a little bit. Um, in the late 1980s, pintails were about 1.2 drakes for every hen, and now they're at four and a half drakes to every hen. So we're at a hen shortage and a drake surplus by a lot. And that's been going on for how long? Uh, well, it's, it's going up every year, but it's been really noticeable incline since the late 1980s. Do they, do they relate that to, uh, low fur prices? Delta waterfowl definitely points to mesopredators, raccoons, Yeah, because there's a, there's a turkey biologist that we had on the show one time, um, that, you know, he felt that was a very interesting argument is looking at fur prices relative to predation of birds. That's kind of when you got out of the professional trapping game when in the late 80s, right? I set my last 
trap for sell. No, I set my last trap for commercial purposes in 1994. Oh, okay. But it was dismal by then. Yep. <laughs> 10 years earlier, it had been really something. But I was only 10 years old. Another thing Chris had brought up there, like North Dakota hadn't even described raccoons living there till the 1950s. And now they're everywhere. Yeah. So it's interesting. Uh, we'll, we'll talk more on that in a, another duck report because there's so much interesting information about the sex ratio and pred, predation on nests and all that. But the, the age disparities are, are wild. How you can have a 30-year-old or 33-year-old Canada goose, but then, you know, a lot of them never even make it out of the nest. In Barry Lopez's book, Arctic Dreams, he's with a pilot and they're doing some polar bear work and they're talking about how old a polar bear can get and they can get pretty old. And he mentions how the biologist says to him, if it doesn't make any mistakes, you know, which is just not <laughs> something you yeah. like, you know what I mean? Right. It's just not something you think about. If it doesn't make any mistakes, it never messes up. It's never like, hey, that looks like a real duck. Even though it's not yeah. moving, it seems to be made out of plastic. <laughs> yeah, no. uh, Sean, I have a question for you. Through that research, mm -hmm. did that? Is there anything about that, like snowballing or turning in, like that uh, separation of how many hens to drakes? Because other drakes, like since the drakes are so rough on hens, usually when they're mating, like with that many drakes to low hen ratio, could it actually start killing more hens and lower that? And that separation, that gap's going to widen. Is there anything research? You know, I don't know. That? I don't think there's any talk about, I don't think Drake's, I mean, I guess I can't speak for biologists, but I don't think they kill enough hens to have a Okay, you don't think that's impact, like enough, right? gotcha. All right. No, no, it's definitely a, definitely a habitat and predation story. You know when you buy a, a dozen or six pack of decoys, it's like mostly drakes. It seems yeah, like yeah. Turns out that's actually accurate. Yeah, right? it's. I wonder if they're. <laughs> I was wondering why they do that. What if they're doing that by? I thought you felt design? like you're getting more value. I don't it's know. More paint, or it's just a contrast thing, easier for the ducks to see the drakes. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Oh, they're probably just doing it because we like looking at the pretty decoys, right? That's true. So you good on that, Sean? Yeah, no, that's... What's the next duck uh, report? What are you working on? Well, I think we'll dive more into the the predator story. Ooh. Ooh. Some of the People are going to start thinking we're anti-predator, which I'm not, but you're going to get into that a little bit. Predation. Mm-hmm. Yep. Definitely. I'm ready for you, man. Why, Stu, I'm going to slowly transition this into talking to you. Okay. You want to see how I'm going to do it? I can't wait. Check this one out. Uh, we were talking on a previous episodes about mistaken song lyrics. Mm -hmm. When you all your life you think they're saying one thing and you realize they're saying something else. Um, there's a song. I don't even heard this damn song. Loggins and Messina. Who's that? Kenny Loggins and... Uh, oh, that Kenny Loggins. Yeah, you said I looked like him one time. Well, yeah, when your hair was long. <laughs> oh, so the, Loggins and Messina's Kenny Loggins. Mm-hmm. What a weird uh, groove he had going for a while of doing movies, movie, the main songs in movies. Yeah. Footloose. Uh, what's the one with the pilots? 
Top Gun. Top Gun. So they got a song called Danny's Song, and in the song they say, Pisces, they get into astronomy. Pisces, Virgo rising is a very good sign. This guy thought he was saying, Price of fur is rising. <laughs> it's a very good sign. <laughs> <laughs> I like when this dude wrote in, he signed off with negative temps here in West Michigan. Make it nice. <laughs> uh, okay, we're going to get into a big old thing about where trappers and predator hunters are having a versus hound hunters in Virginia, but we're going to put that on hold. That's very interesting to me, though. Infighting. Hunter infighting. And unlikely enemies. We're going to cover this very soon. How trappers and predator hunters are, uh, and, and hound hunters are all at each other's throats. Hmm. Cannibalism. What, Stu? I don't see it. I hound hunt and I trap. Stu hates himself. Stu's going to stab Stu's going to end up stabbing himself. It's a rich field of inquiry. We're going to cover it, but I want to do a real quick one. Colorado, who seems like every other day is banning, trying to ban something. Uh, this time they were trying their 18th time to ban lion. It's so funny they always throw in links. That's the thing, man. They uh, like didn't Arizona include jaguar? Yeah. When they tried, the, they always got to sneak in an animal that you can't hunt anyway. Because people, because they're standing <laughs> out in front of a Whole Foods getting signatures for these things. Yep. Right. And so, like, here comes some old lady hasn't seen a wild animal in three years. Uh, comes along. <laughs> And they're like, will you sign our petition to ban, right? And they want to sweeten the pot. So they're like, and ban lynx hunting? Because she's like, Jesus. I can't They're killing lynx. Yeah. Like, you can't kill lynx in Colorado. But they're going to ban it. Yep. Lest, I don't know. Yeah, in Arizona. Like, and no killing jaguars. By the way. Yeah. You can't kill jaguars. But they like to throw, because, yeah, I think it is. It adds, like, it adds, it sweetens the pot. You know, the great thing about this one is it didn't get dragged out over a long period of time. It like came up and whammo got rejected right away. It's great. Uh, Karim was pointing out that a guy named Vinny from New Jersey wrote in, which makes that the second Vinny to ever have anything to do with this podcast. So at this point, we've had two Vinnies, both from New Jersey mentioned on this show. And not a cat lady from New Jersey. So yeah, that bill's over. It'll come up again. Yeah. I just like, here's the thing, man. Here's the thing. This is all I want in the world. I want there to be a, I want the environment to be extremely clean, clean air, clean water, healthy wildlife. I don't want to, I want to leave as much of it as pristine as humanly possible, even to the point where we have to make sacrifices. I want the earth to be, the, the, let's just keep it the country. I want this Amer- America to be full of pristine, wild places, full of animals that we have access to as renewable resources. It's not that complicated. If you want to help cats, help habitat. Yeah. If you want to help the, the how many links are in Colorado right now? Oh, I, not very many. Secure links habitat. Yeah. And Secure really, lynx habitat. Lynx habitats. What what there is in Colorado is doing. It's great, you know, like wilder, federally protected wilderness areas. You know, make keep sure it that, secure. Yeah, then. exactly. Yeah. Keep it secure. That will be the thing. If you want lynx in Colorado, the thing that will make it that there's lynx in Colorado is that there's habitat. Quit skiing. Quit skiing. 
I'm going down the hill. Oh, there's, I can hear people typing already. Yeah. Well, those skiers. So, skiers. There's a battle over those skiers and bighorns down in Jackson, sure. Wyoming right now. If you want the links to be fine, make it that there's a shitload of links habitat, and then all your problems will be solved. It yeah. won't be because someone who can't anyways were to... It just... You're missing the point. Yeah, let's move on. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay. It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, heads up all you anglers. Montana Casting Company is a performance fly rod and reel company based right here in Montana, based in Helena. After building custom fly rods for more than 25 years, Montana native and lifelong fly fisherman Scott Joyner decided to apply his knowledge in designing three performance-driven fly rod models. These rods were designed to be performance rods and to withstand the abuse that a fishing guide's equipment endures day in, day out. Their fly rods are named after Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks fishing access sites, which is such a cool idea. And each model of fly rod is a tribute to Montana's rugged beauty and adventurous spirit. Their rods capture the look, feel, and craftsmanship of a custom-built fly rod. Montana Casting Company fly rods have been developed to achieve the perfect balance of performance, durability, and legacy quality 
craftsmanship. Head to montanacastingco.com and use code MEATEATER20 at checkout for a one-time 20% off discount. All right, Stu. How in the Sam Hill? Because here's the thing. Here's my biggest question for you. Here's my excuse for becoming a trapper. I was born in 1974. The great fur boom of the of like 78 to 82. I was born in 74, and so I was aware of that. And I didn't set a trap till the last year of the fur boom. But I was informed by the fur boom. Like all this, you know, this is in 1984 $75 red fox, $50 mink, $40 raccoons, $80 beavers, $7 muskrats. Someone, Phil, what was all, what's all that mean in, in today's dollars? <laughs> and that was in the round, <laughs> too. <laughs> can, you, can you real quick explain why the prices were so high at that time? Like just based on demand for, I think there was at that time there was still strong domestic demand, and I'm guessing I don't I, I maybe, maybe Stu remembers it better, but the big consumers, China, South Korea, Russia, right? So uh, at, at times Italy. So I'm guessing that those economies were very strong. I'm guessing that oil prices. Well, we know oil prices got incredibly high. Their economies are strong, oil prices are high, and you had tons of consumer demand, and you had domestic, you had U.S. demand for luxury stuff. $100 in 1974 would be about $569, according to... Okay, so tell me what a $7, tell me what a, no, tell me what a $40 make. I did a, I did a $40 in 1984, would have been $109 today. Okay, so $109 mink today. Pretty good money. That is good money. And I was seduced by those figures because we'd mow a lawn for five bucks. And a muskrat was worth more than, well, it depends on whose lawn. Like the Musselmans paid 15 bucks to mow their lawn. <laughs> but that was a pain in the ass. You had to take like a lunch break. <laughs> you couldn't even get it done in one shot. You had to like mow a bunch and then like you'd go home and eat and go swimming and shit and go back and mow again. So two muskrats was like Musselman's lawn. That's why I got into it. There were guys by, there were guys taking two weeks of vacation and then like t- teaming it up with like their holiday vacation and buying trucks with muskrat money. Pretty cool. Considering you could go like, out I built there. A, I built a barn. You could really live off the land back then. So what's your excuse? How old are you? 32. You missed all that I shit. missed all that, yeah. <laughs> Occasionally though, right? Occasionally, every now and then, something like last year or two years ago, like Western Coyotes, it was like, yep, boom, they were worth a lot of money. That's a good point. Now and then there'll be a freak. But it's because of some type of weird niche market, typically, right? That like... Typically, those. so like the fur boom, like you're talking, the fur boom that I remember would like have been... Like the uppercase F. Yeah, would have been... Like 2011, 2013, 14. Well, that's what you called your fur. That's my fur boom. That's my generation fur boom. That's your generation. Like muskrats in 13. 
Yeah. I was selling $14 muskrats. I averaged almost $25 on coons that year. I sold several coyotes, you know, which we're talking Midwestern coyotes. So, like you know. Shit coyotes. Yeah, pretty bad ones, you know, and have an average of $70, $75 on them. You know. That was a good little fur boom. I, yeah, I did really good then. So, yeah. You were making money. I was making money. Yeah. I was actually making money trapping. Now, you're just doing it pretty much for the hobby of it, but... Fur prices definitely have gone down, but that's the fur boom that I remember. So is that what got you into it? No. So, you know, trapping is, trapping's hard. Like it really is hard. And, you know, growing up, I, I was an outdoorsman, you know, I deer hunted, I bow hunted, I duck hunted, I, I did everything, you know. You didn't ski though, did you? I did not ski. Yeah, Being good. a southerner, we just didn't quite <laughs> have the ability there. <laughs> so I... Didn't ski, but, you know, I was, I was hunting everything there was a season for. I was fishing for everything that there was a season, you know, we could catch. And trapping just, it was hard. And I remember this was kind of never. Hard, in, like technically hard or physically hard? Both. I know the answer. Both. Yeah. Both. And I remember this is kind of whenever like inline muzzleloaders were really becoming a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like really. And in Illinois, we can't use rifles, centerfire rifles. And, uh. So it's shotgun or muzzleloader or pistol. And I remember, you know, muzzleloaders were coming out and I, I bought a real good inline muzzleloader. And I remember I shot a deer at like 250 yards, you know, I'm like, well, that's it. I'm done. Like I, where you peaked, you know, I mean, it's just deer walk out across 40 acre field and you just drop him, you know, it's, there's not much to that, you know, sitting in a deer stand and I'd always trapped as a kid. And, you know, after that, I remember I kind of, I bought some sets and, you know, at the time there wasn't a lot of education about it or information, you know, you pretty much had to kind of learn on the fly or was self-taught and, uh, it just slowly progressed from there. You know, trapping is one of those things that if you get past the whole Disney thing where, you know, you go out and set three sets and you come back the next day and you have three critters. Oh, what Disney are you talking about? That's what everybody always tells me. You know, that's the assumption I would say is that, there's Disney movies where people have super high catch rates. Well, I mean, you know, you get the big bear traps and, you know, oh, just yeah, the, yeah. the illusion of that people have of that trapping is almost like a hundred percent success. Oh, there's ratio. just like, it's just mayhem. Blood yeah, guts, I, yeah. I call it Disney, but I mean, you know, that's just the general assumption, yeah. you know, which it's not, um, you know, you're going out there and you're trying, you're going out in an area that this critter, you know, he knows same as, you know, your backyard, you're going out in their area. And you are trying to trick that animal, for the most part, to step on an area that is the size of a top of a soda can. That's pretty hard to do. Mm-hmm. You know, considering that, that critter could go anywhere he wants, and that's what you're trying to do. And I think that's what drew me to it more than anything. Yeah, he's got is, like a thousand acre home range. Yeah, is the challenge. And you want him to it. step on a beer can. Yeah, the top of a beer can, you're trying to get that critter to put his foot on. And that's that, to me, was kind of the allure of it. That's what drew me to it was was the challenge because I mean, you've trapped, you know, you've trapped trappers are a different breed, you know, and I don't mean that being like the, you know, Jeremiah Johnson or mm. old dingy construction worker, you know, or one of those, which I am, but I mean, you've got to be driven and, you know, there's a different mentality to it, to trapping. You, there's a lot of work involved with it. Um, physically, mentally, you know, I, I'll say, so deer hunting, a lot of people can relate to deer hunting. So you're going to deer hunt and you're going to, you're going to deer hunt every day in December or every chance you get. Right. So 
for the majority of us that work a, a 40 hour week, you're not going to be able to hunt during the week. You're going to be able to hunt on the weekends, right? Cause sun rises at seven o'clock and sets at four 30. So you hunt every single chance you can during December, you're going to get to hunt eight times, mm-hmm. eight days, basically. Right. If I want to go trap and I want to trap every day in December, I'm in the woods 31 days in December. That takes a lot of drive and a lot of, you know, sure. A, a, a lot of, you know, you just got to be involved with it so much more. And I think that's, that's what drives me to do it is just the challenge of it. That's a pretty good point where when the, the, the four years that I really trapped hard would be like my last two years of high school where I got, where I could get out of school early. Mm-hmm. I'd go early, but get out early and I'd get out pre like, like remarkably early. Be done like one forty or something like that, um, and then in my two first years of college, I did community college. I took all night classes so I could trap. So I didn't have to show up till five. No, I either had to be there at six or seven, and I only went four days a week, and I'd be there until ten at night. Um, I would start October fifteenth when Fox opened, and I would be in the woods every single day, every day between October. 15th and the end of January. I would have some business in the woods every day. And don't you feel that you have a kind of a little better relationship with kind of, I guess, the outdoors or your area? And you're seeing stuff every single day. You're in the woods way more than like the average deer hunter. I mean, you're interacting with stuff that most people can't. And that to yeah. me is just. That's cool, you know. Looking for toenail marks in the mud. You're look, yeah, that's all you're doing. <laughs> you know, Looking like footprints in the mud. But no, to me, that's that's what draws me to it is just the challenge. And then, you know, it, for my instance, I go ahead and I take it a step further, if you will, with with my fur handling side of it. So I mean, you know, a lot of people sell in the round or they they sell green, which is just a skinned critter. Um, and a round is hole in the carcass. You caught the thing. You dispatched it. There he lays. That's in the round. And like who, explain who the hell you'd sell a raccoon in the round to. So whenever we have times of high fur prices, um, there are, you know, the auction companies of fur buyers that will buy that. You know, back to like your fur boom, I remember people talking about that's They wouldn't even bother taking the time to skin their coons because the price difference between finished fur and in the round wasn't enough to justify going through all the trouble of it. They could just go out and catch more coons. And and they're every night dropping by the fur buyer. Or you could freeze them, yep. you know, depending on depending on your climate too. But yeah, selling in the round or selling in the green. Uh, NAFA, they're at the end of their kind of run. They were offering um, skinning. You could, you, could, you could send them green furs and they would flesh them and stretch them. So a lot of buyers too, a lot of your county buyers sometimes prefer having green fur or or in the round, mainly just green, simply because they know you're not going to screw it up, right? Got it. So, I mean, they know that they've got a skill set. They're, they're going to flesh it and stretch it just how they want it because 90% of your local buyers are selling to the auction houses anyway. So yep. they want to get a premium and they want to have it right. So Do you, you want to know something that's going to increase tension between you and Seth? <laughs> and it's going to create tension between you and Rick? I'm making all sorts of enemies. Seth had a top lot mink. Yeah. Which he's going to tell what that means. And you had a top lot something. I had a top lot gray fox. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Tell, tell Stu all about that. Uh, like that what gray? that means. Oh, the top lot? 
Uh, Stu probably already knows. Yeah, Stu knows about the top lot. I guarantee. Yeah. I've, you had, I have, I've had a few. Yeah, <laughs> Stu's had a few. We we talked about it. I, what hurts me more is I got that top lot, and I, Seth told oh, me he's like, right there, he's like, hey Rick, you're gonna you can go oh, get a oh, hat. Back, back oh, up, back okay, up, back okay. up. All right. Okay, who wants to explain what the hell a top lot is? Oh, I've never had one, but I can do it. Stu, oh. yeah, uh, whoever, go for it. Stu explain a top lot. Yes, his fur knowledge is because yeah. this is fur handling one hundred and one. Yeah. Okay, so a top lot, and generally whenever we're talking top lot, we're talking about selling through the auction houses. So you've got a few different ways to sell. Obviously, you can sell to your county or local buyer, and then normally they will actually sell to the auction houses. So a few years ago, there were two main auction houses. There was NAFA, which was North American Fur Auction, and then FH Fur Harvesters. Right. NAFA went under a few years ago, so now there's just fur harvesters. So these auction houses, they will gather up giant lots of fur, and they'll grade them down by size, by color, whole different, whole different list of stuff. So to get a top lot basically means that you have your, your pelt in the very top of what's selling. So you've got the best color, the best uh, size, the best quality. You've got the best of, say, all the coyotes that are being sold at that auction. That top lot, you've got your your pelt in that lot that's being sold. And, I mean, it's a pretty big honor, really, you know, mm-hmm. to be able to get that. Um, and they give you a hat. They give you a hat. <laughs> they give you a pin. They give you a little certificate with your name yeah. on it. It tells you. So you got to hear Rick's very sad story, though. Uh, so it was it was actually 2013 because it I was cry, my, uh, I gotta leave the room because I uh, cried. Okay, so upset. It's 2013 or maybe actually yeah, it was 2013, and I I got a this certificate in the mail, the top lot for that gray fox, and I told Seth about it, and and he was like all pumped. He's like, hey, when you go sell fur next time, you could take your certificate and show the the driver, and you'll you'll get a hat. And I was like, oh sweet. Well, explain what the driver is. People are gonna know. Oh that yeah, okay. So well, <laughs> Stu can talk. So much better this, but you gotta, it's a very, <laughs> it's a weird, it's a weird, so I'll back up even more. Feels like I, you're doing something illegal. Yeah. I, yeah to the point, Seth shady. and uh, the gentleman Seth used to work for were kind of my trapping mentors and they're telling me, he's like, all right, you, you got to sell your fur now. You got to, I'm like, how do I do that? So they're explaining they you got to go at the the TA truck stop. You meet stop. At the TA yep. at seven thirty and drive around back. Like back. TNA, or <laughs> yeah, TA? no TA, TA, just TA okay, truck stop. Okay, and uh, I thought Seth and this gentleman were messing with me. I'm like, so I just show up and then, and I'll just know what to do. And I have my little my little <laughs> NAFA bag they gave me in my my sack my NAFA sack, and I'm sitting there. <laughs> So like, and then when you get there, you got to pull your pants down. And then they'll, they'll know it's you. <laughs> and it's always a sketchy <laughs> truck is. stop, too, yeah. right? Because like, so, they're trying to make that line. And uh, I'm sitting there, and I start noticing all these other trucks pull up. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I think. And it's, yeah, like 6 in the morning. Then this budget rental truck comes ripping into the parking lot, just parks in the middle. Back guy gets out, opens the back door. And I think I told you, I felt like, it's like when you're a young kid going into gym class for the first time in the showers, and I like have this. <laughs> I have this little bag. I'm like, yeah, I got 20 furs in here, and then these dudes are just unloading white bags. I'm like, oh shit, wow, that's a lot. Um, but that was the first couple of times. So you 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 go there and you get in the line, hand in all your bags. They give you like it was like the old. Uh, certificate styles like they'd write on it and there'd be like a pink sheet a yellow sheet and you'd have to throw one in the bag and they'd hand you your you know and st- i'm butchering this stew can explain and no, no money what, changes hands no money no. changes hands but 
at that's the pickup I'm referring to. So a couple, like in the next year, I'm at this pickup and I'm like excited. You have last year's. I have last year's top lot certificate in my hand and I can't wait to get that NAFA top lot trapper hat. I know it sounds so yeah. stupid. <laughs> no, you go to the bar and meet all uh, kinds yeah, of girls. I was, oh, yeah, because I was so into it. Big time, I was man. Like, oh, it's yeah. great because they're gold embroidered anyway. You feel yeah. like a king. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I walk out, I was one of the last guys in line. I had, We did my, our fur exchange, he, um, did my sheet and I was like, sir, I also have a top lot certificate here. I was like, I'm wondering, do you have the, the hats? And it was this old guy. He looks right. Just <laughs> so serious. He's like, Oh, I'm sorry, son. I'm all out of those hats. I just gave them all like my last one out. And I was like, Oh, that, that's all right. You know, but I was so crushed. I, I walked off like I was tough, but I was like, Oh my God. All I wanted was a damn hat. And to so, this day. To this day, I don't have one. And it like, it's like you're tearing man, up right now. Oh man. It's emotional. Yeah. See, man, I oh, want it. Funny. See, I've never had a top lot, but I kind of want, uh, I mean, I, I never would. And you should be shot if you do. But I'd be very tempted to wear that hat. If hat, I had. yeah. I want. We should. But look I might, on like what if you got exposed? What if you got? Yeah. What if you wore it and got exposed? People were like, "Let me see your certificate." Do you know, I'm gonna. I was gonna frame my certificate after we talked about it a few months. I was like, "Yeah, you." Do you said still it. have it? I still have it. Can we I hang it in the studio here? Of course. Yeah, we. Oh, can what do a that. great addition! But we were to the talking studio. about it. You're like, you should frame that. And I was like, <laughs> sitting in your trunk, I'm like, you know what? I should. Yeah, I, I framed mine. Do you? I've got mine framed. Oh, how, many top, how many top lots you got, Stu? I've got three through NAFA. For which ones? Uh, I've got a coon, I've got a beaver, and I've got a coyote. Because, see, the problem is, now, I say a coyote because I'm from Illinois, Midwest, right? So there's kind of this thing amongst trappers. You have your top lot, and then you have your top lot sections. Mm. So, like, my beaver, I my beaver was the top lot. My coon was the top lot. My coyote was the top lot of the section. So like the sh- top, the best of the shit coyote. It's like you're standing on the podium, but the guy, you're top of the podium, but there's still somebody just above you. Yeah. Because it's not the top top, but it's still the top of that section. The Western pales would be top. They are top. Like I'm never going to get a top lot coyote where I trap ever. It's just not going to happen. But I got the top lot of the section. Do you have three hats? No, I got one hat because I've got two similar stories to what Rick really had. they really dropped the ball on the hats. Yeah. I've got three pins though. Yeah, see, I didn't know the pins were. Yeah, we, we never got yeah. pins. Yeah, they yeah. got a pin. Got so hat. I got cheated out of a pin and a hat. And, uh, yeah, man. But the hats were cool. Like mine is. Yeah. I wore mine till it was so ratty and nasty. You know, I was so proud and of the thing. Stu, you kind of talked that hat, and I'm not a hat guy. I don't. I very rarely actually wear hats, but that was like a badge of honor because I do think in the tier of like outdoorsmen. Trapper is the pinnacle, and like, not a lot of people in our generation were into trapping, and that's why I was like, I want that hat so I can wear it. And I don't know, I just yeah, felt like it was like a medal. And when that old man told me I couldn't have one or didn't have it, I was like, oh god. Where's your hat, Seth? I think it's back at my mom's place in Pennsylvania somewhere. You can call her and tell her to yeah. send it out. I mean, it Do you have your certificate? I think it's there too somewhere. Can you have her hunt it down? Yeah, I could probably have her look. Look around for it. Do you, want, do you want to plug your mom's boot company while we're talking about this? Center Boot Company in Belfont, Pennsylvania. Check it out. Yeah, if you need to buy boots, don't yep. buy them anywhere else. Don't buy them at Zappos. Don't buy them at Amazon. Yeah. Drive to Seth's mom's store. Center Boot Company. Um, work, hunting, Western. They also sell all sorts of other stuff like belt buckles and leather goods. Yeah, and, if you're over there in Pennsylvania, if you're over here, go to Schnee's. If you're over there, go to Seth's mom. Yep. Check them out. They're gonna have a booth at the uh, the 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 big sportsman show in Harrisburg here. You can, go, in, in you a, can actually go meet the real Seth's mom. Yep, 
Go go look up their booth if you're going to be there. And ask her uh, if she can please find Seth's hat and top lot certificate. Yes. That, I'm sure that hat's, because you had it in college. You had it on like your wall. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I kind of so, lost track of it. I don't know where it is, but. You See, they only give top lots for certain species. So for some reason where I'm at, we grow like awesome possums. Mm-hmm. Awesome possums. I, I don't know why, right? But back in the day, you could pay for all your gas by by putting up possums. What is the day? 11 through 14. That's that's my fur boom. Okay, so explain the possum market. It's, well, I mean, you know, you've got kind of a lower end market with the possums, but normally you catch them as bycatch. And I would put them up. And I mean, we grow some big possums there. And I would, I remember, I, I can't say the exact, I want to say like $17 I sold a possum for back in the day. No shit. Yeah, I mean, I averaged like $12 on them. Yeah. And is, that, is that market collapse now? Yeah. For, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's hard to even get rid of them right now. But you were saying, one thing you are telling me that's interesting is the skunk fur market doesn't fluctuate. Not really. No, depending on who you go through and the different avenues you go through, skunks are at least what I trap in my area. They're the most consistent sell every year, mainly just because they're a novelty item. So who do you sell the skunks to? I've got a couple of private buyers who I'm not going to say, but got you. I mean, it, it's kind of a, it's, it's a niche market, right? So, I mean, you know, you flood the market with these niche buyers, then, you know, you're not going to have your market, but yeah. It's it's a very consistent market, and how many skunks did you put up this year? Probably I don't know numbers. I'm saying between sixty and seventy so far. You fleshed and stretched between yeah. sixty and seventy skunks this year. Yeah. You don't even smell like a skunk. Wow! No, you I, could, you how do used... you dispatch them? Because that's that's always real controversial. Uh, a lot of guys will inject them with acetone. I I shoot everything. I'm not going to take the time. I'm running and gunning the whole time. So I do a center body shot, try to hit the vitals. I think the trick is a very slow bullet, something that's not going to create a lot of impact. And you probably get maybe one out of eight, one out of nine that spray. Because I want the essence, right? So that adds to the value of the skunk is that you sell the fur, but then you there's also a market for the essence. And so essence right now is you know right about, $20 an ounce average. What? Yeah. So how much do you get out of one skunk? About $25. I mean, like, oh, a- essence wise? Yeah. So it just depends on if they spray or not. If they're full, you know, a little over half an ounce. So you take a, a skunk that's, you know, $25 if he's got good white stripes. And if he's full of essence, you know, throw another $10 to $12 on it. That's not a bad deal for something you're not necessarily targeting either. I mean, there are guys that target them, but for me, they're bycatch. Yeah. So, Well, why not just set specifically for them? Because I'm out there targeting other species, and I say bycatch in the fact that I'm in the same general area. So I catch them a lot in my coon sets is where I catch them. Because you're going to catch them whether you're targeting them or not. Yeah. Yeah. So, and like I said, you want the, you want the good ones. Um, you know, you're going to get a little bit more money for the, the good white stripes. That's what they want. I mean, that's, that's what the novelty market is wanting, but no, the skunk is an underrated fur for sure. And if you have never seen a skunk fur in general, they've got awesome fur. It's real long kind of silky fur. I mean, it, it really is a. Stu, didn't you say they're trappers even starting to target them now just because oh, yeah. of that market? For yeah. sure. Yeah. There, there's several guys that, that I know that they go out and. 
pretty much target them, you know. Do you think me and Rick would be able to pull top lot off those giants I was showing you earlier today? Well, see, that's one funny thing. It was like thing. 100 pounders. I never did get a top lot skunk. I don't think they give out the certificates. That's a funny, you know, oh, it's kind of like. I haven't gotten that hat. Yeah. And I never sold a skunk. Yeah. I don't know if. Those, you'd are, have to, those are some big skunks, though. You'd have to go and through the, fur and harvesters. And there's no more NAFA, so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you'd have to go through fur harvesters <laughs> yeah. now, and I don't know if they give out for. Forgive my ignorance here. What is the market for the essence? Like, what are people using it for? What do they want it for? So the main market is for bait makers. Um, it's also, mm. you can Google essence and come up with, I mean, it, it is, there's a large market for it. The main market is essence, uh, for, for lure, for trapping. That takes a lot of it. Um, you know, and it's so like we were running Martin sets, right? There's not a lot of skunks in the mountains. So those guys can't access, you know, they don't have access to skunks. So, but there are different, different markets for it too, as well. Um, Gotcha. I think th- I I could be wrong. I think there's some food additives that Stu, you might have heard. I feel like years ago it was used in perfumes a lot. Perfumes. Like they would pull apart the scent, but like what sticks? Yeah, is that correct? Yeah, and there's then some be- way to break it down. Yeah. Uh, caster's huge. Yeah, caster's a hundred bucks a pound right now, right? Caster's a hundred bucks a pound. So like, caster's always funny because like around the holidays, caster is. We're talking about it. We're talking about a thing that like when you skin a beaver on each side of the vent. It'd be like if you're like if you reach down and grab on yourself, male or female, whatever, above your how would I put it? Between what would be that little area? Are they? I know a vulgar term for that little area. <laughs> yes, exactly between. Just say between. <laughs> between. the in between zone. <laughs> no, not your taint. <laughs> it's like it's like it's like a vulgar term for what that is. What is it? Like, if you were going <laughs> to, I don't know, like, uh, 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 above your genitals and on either side, there's like a little soft area where your legs join up to your body. What is that called? That spot. If you had a hernia. <laughs> oh, yeah. You're, Picture you had a hernia. On a beaver, there sits. If you had a double hernia. It's like uh, your groin area. Yeah, your groin area. There sits these two sacks full of caster. Looks like a brain. Looks like two brains hiding out down in there. Um, and they use it for, uh, imitate like artificial vanilla, vanilla extracts, a big one. A lot of it goes, I, I think there's a big market in Turkey for something they perfume. produce. Perfume. It's huge in perfume. Cause it really does have a sweet smell yeah, to it. hundred bucks a pound right now. hundred bucks a pound right now. The caster, if you get a beaver loaded with caster, his caster is worth more than all of his other parts. Yeah. hundred percent. Is that, um, I might be cause I've been with Steve when he's, oh, I'm sitting on a bunch of pounds of it. Trapping. I'm rich. And <laughs> the, is the, the weight, the, the dried out weight? Yeah. Generally, uh, there's a few different ways, but generally the the accepted way is to have it dried. Can I give you a huge bag of beaver casters and then you'll like uh, owe me like a stretcher or something like that? Well, you already gave me two stretchers. If I give you a big bag of beaver casters, can we call it in? Call it even. Call it even. Get that hat from him. Would you fly home with the beaver casters? We could fly home with it. I don't know. Could I'm going home with a bunch of beaver casters. No, you need them for bait because that's no, one no, no, universal no, no, no. bait. I know. It's a universal attractant. Yeah. No, beaver caster is is where it's at if you're trapping right now. So I'm going to give you a bunch of beaver casters. And the oil sacks, too. You can also take the oil sacks. I kind of quit saving those because me and Seth here, we're old lure makers. I don't know if you know that about okay. us. Yeah. <laughs> and we would <laughs> take... Meter lures. We made, a, we made like a lot. Oh, yeah. Is that that stuff we used the other day? Is that still from the... Yeah, the yeah. 
the main stuff. We made like a couple quart jars of that stuff. And we took uh, valerian root, apple essence, and a lot of beaver caster, and a lot of glycerin. That should work. Oh, it's magic. Oh, it worked. It should work. Yeah, it yeah. worked. We Sucks got a lot of beavers with that stuff. Yeah. No, the caster is definitely where it's at. Are you selling caster? I'm selling caster. I, I take what, because I make a lot of my own bait. So I take every year what I need to get me through basically the next year, and then I'll sell the rest. I'm going to give you a couple bags of it. Okay. I just want you to have it. I, I want it. Okay. What's your beaver pressure like in southern Illinois? Is, is there a lot of people trying to catch beavers there? Or? There's not a lot of beavers where I'm at. Okay. So that's that's the problem more than anything is that yeah. you've got to be very conscious about you know, I've always said where I'm at right now, if I wanted to, I could take two weeks and I could basically trap out my my area. Yeah. And so I've got to be very conscious about how I trap the beaver. I trap far away from the house, trying to get the the big the big, you know, parent beaver. Trap far away from the beaver house. Yeah, because yeah. generally the further away you get from the house, you'll kind of keep yourself from catching the small kit beavers. They just don't travel as far. Uh, and then I just, you know, once I go in, I'll take, you know, two or three out of the house and then I'm done. I'll leave it just yep. to kind of have seed for next year. What's and that's your, just the uh, area that like I Like how big is your trapping area? Like, So my trapping area is dictated a lot by my work, being that I work construction. So I have a giant range that I've worked over the years. And over the years, I've set up sort of trap lines to correlate with where I'm working, you know, because I mean, I'm working every day, so I want to be able to, to run the line on the way back home from work. So, uh, you know, tell, tell Brody this, this will help him conceptualize it. Like if you tell him how many permissions, permissions, how many permissions you maintain at any given time? Between 115 and 120. Landowner permission. Try getting that many whitetail permissions. <laughs> it would never happen. Yeah. Well, because that's the only way I can trap. So but we have very we have no public land where I'm at. But yeah, yeah he maintains. Of, but you know what? He, give him your spiel. Yes. Yeah, so I mean, so I, he walks up with traps. Yeah. And starts jamming his hands into them. Like, Don't give him an education, you know? Because I mean, the first. So in general, because people are worried about their dogs. Or yeah, yeah. So in general, I'm gonna get. Nine no's to one yes. Oh, just, even for trapping permission. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, that's, people don't, they don't understand. They don't want you on it, which, you know, it's their land, whatever. But, I mean, that's kind of my ratio is is nine no's to one yes. So, you'll go up, you'll have a conversation with them. That's and, better than Spencer's whitetail ratio. Wasn't it like 150 and he got one or yeah, something like yeah, that? Yeah. Well, he got one A, 150 letters. He got like an A plus. He, he was like grading. He got like... An A plus, a couple C's, and a D minus. Right. Anyway, go on. So, no, I'll go up and try to, you know, more than anything, try to educate the people about trapping. Because, I mean, a lot of people just don't know about it, you know. And they, like I said, then they have the illusion that, oh, I'm going to go trap. Well, you're going to bring out a giant bear trap with teeth, you know. And, and you know, it's just not the case. So, you know, if that fails, I'll normally get out traps. And I'll, here, this is what I'm going to use. And, you know, nine times out of ten, I'll stick my hand in them and show you, you know, like I'm not losing fingers or breaking bones or anything. And, you know, for me where I'm at, because I do live in what I would consider a fairly populated area, kind of last resort, I'll go to the dog-proof traps, which if you not understand what a dog-proof is, it's basically a cylinder. And so like a, a, a coon, a skunk, a possum, they all have a lot of dexterity in their paws. They kind of have a hand, if you will. So with a dog-proof trap, if you can picture about a three-inch tube that's about an inch and a quarter in diameter and the very bottom of it has a, a lever on it. 
that you actually have to pull as opposed to a foothold trap where, you know, the critter just puts his paw in it and then the jaws close around. With these dog-proof traps, the the opening is small enough that that ideally a, a dog can't get his paw down in there and you have to actually have dexterity to pull up on that trap. Yeah, you can only catch things that could pick a lot. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. So I will use that as, you know, kind of a, a last resort, so to speak, to get permission, you know, and say, hey, I can, you know, with the right bait, I can trap around all your cats and, your, you know, your farm dogs and everything like that. And sometimes that kind of seals the deal, you know. If you have a hundred, let's say you had a, how many, you got like 120 permissions? Yeah, around about. If yeah. you, let's say out of that 120 permissions, how many of those are dog proof only? I would say close to half. Huh. Close to half. I mean, that's the only way I can do it. And that's the reason I use so many dog proofs in my trapping is because, yeah. you know, I've got to do what I got to do. What I like so to be So you can't do coyote work on those places. Can't do coyote work. Can't set one and a halves. No two twenties. Have no. you had any luck, uh, like getting permission where, like at hunting leases where they're like after whitetails or turkeys or waterfowl because those guys want you coming in. To, There's a few. Yeah, yeah. They they want the predators gone. Yeah. Um, you know which. They always have stipulations. Oh, well, I don't want you in here a week before season or, you know, a week after season. And they, they want to really make you work for it, you know, which is, at least in Illinois, you know, we've got a, a shotgun firearm season starting November every other weekend for a month and a half. So it makes it really difficult to work around, you know. So you've got to do a lot of planning and, and different things like that to be able to work around and actually trap an area like that. Explain your otter. We talked about otters today. Okay. Explain how it works for you, like in a regulatory sense, when you talk about like you talk about like getting my otters. So to get my otters in Illinois, we got a season. I guess it was I don't know, eight nine years ago or so by now. Uh, so I can go out in Illinois. I'm allowed five otters for my license, so I can go out and and target the otter. Once I catch it, I make a phone call to the DNR, and they send me a a sight tag, and then I tag that otter. Once it has a sight tag on it, then I'm good to sell it. And you, every year, can get five. I can get every, yeah, every year. And what do you do with those five? I sell them. To taxidermy trade or fur trade? I sell a couple every year to taxidermy, but the majority of them goes to fur trade. Normally, I can find somebody local that wants them as a wall hanger yep. that I could sell them to, you know, because we're only dealing with five, so yep. it comes and goes. Back in the day, you know, I was selling them Back in the day, again, you know, there's more money in selling them at the fur trade than it was selling them local. But what was the highest an otter pelt went for that you can remember in terms of your fur broom? I remember selling a couple for fifty bucks. Okay, so I mean, nothing crazy, you know. Which, whenever you're looking at a fifty dollar otter, you're looking at a huge critter. You know, you feel like you should be getting more for them anyway. You know, yeah. but so how how is it that you wound up deciding to do like all the instructional videos? Did you do it as a way to like, did you think it would be a way to make money? No, no, because there's, there's no money in it. But so. I mean, there's no money in just making YouTube videos. Not for me, because YouTube's so restricted. And you don't have, and you don't have, you don't sell equipment or anything. No, no. So YouTube's so restricted on their stuff that, you know, everybody hears about monetization of videos and my content is not monetization you know like worthy. The, youtube won't let you monetize your videos or youtube won't monetize your they videos won't mon- because of my content yeah. because they feel that it's it, yeah. it's like an animal cruelty issue yeah and there's a fine line you got to play you know youtube's huge with blood you know you can't show blood and you know there's a strike rule too so you're always kind of walking that fine line of you know even if this is 
demonetize per se. I've still got to not get a strike on my channel because then they could just, you could wake up one morning and it could just be done, you know. But you've never lost your channel. Never lost my channel. I've had two strikes before. And and you were telling me that too, that YouTube's policy makes it that you're afraid to like redo and make new versions of your high performing videos. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of my videos, which I guess to kind of get back to your initial question. So we're talking back, back in the day, um, this was 10 years ago. I've been doing YouTube now for, this is my 10th year doing it. And, uh, which kind of correlates right with the middle of the last fur boom. And I've been trapping for a few years, you know, and I'd been putting up my fur and, you know, not to pat myself on the back, but I mean, I kind of felt like I knew what I was doing. And I remember like what Rick was saying, you go up to the NAFA truck, you know, and you're sitting there and it, standing there and, you know, of course, during a fur boom, you've got a lot of new guys coming in, you know, that, that aren't there because they're just there for the money. And red fox are pretty rare around my area, you know, not very common. And at this time, you know, 10 years ago, there wasn't a lot of literature out there about trapping. You know, you were fur fishing game, you were trappers, but there were just a few magazines, you know, but for the most part, there wasn't a lot of information out there. It was kind of secretive, really. And I remember walking up to the NAFA truck and there was this guy and he must have found a pocket of red fox, which, you know, like I said, around my area is pretty rare. And he had them hanging there and he didn't have an NAFA bag because it was his first year. And those things were just butchered. I mean, they, you could just tell the guy did not know what he was doing. And I remember that I, I told myself, I was like, well, I could do this. I could, I could put out content, you know, that people could, could view and put up their, their fur, right. You know, cause I feel like you're going to take the animal. You might as well do it justice and put it up right. And it was actually that night I went home, made a YouTube channel. And then that following season. Oh, really? Yeah. That following, what I made, was the first thing you launched on it? Uh, I was hunting with my coonhound because the season was still in. Yeah, the season was still in for that. So that was the first video I ever uploaded was was hunting with my coonhound, and then that following year, uh, that following trapping season, I started with the fur handling videos, and I did fur handling videos on just about all the all the critters in my area, from you know. The process is catching them, skinning them, fleshing them, stretching them, the whole deal. So, and, and talk about why you can't, why you don't want to redo them. So I've tried to redo them a couple of times, and every time I upload them, they very quickly get demonetized, which sucks because, you know. Because they lot, find it because it's new? Yeah. Like it's YouTube new. finds it because yeah, it's new. Yeah, so all my old videos are demonetized anyway, but they're still up there. So it's not like they can strike me on them. You know, they've already demonetized them, but new videos. So they don't go strike you about 10-year-old stuff. No, I, I woke up one morning a few years ago and I had like 75 videos that were all demonetized and I had a strike overnight. Yeah. It was just all yellow on my, on my page. They hit me hard. <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't <laughs> upload for 15, 15 or 20 days. I can't remember what it was. Yeah. They like banned me from it. So yeah, no, I I've tried in the past because like I said, obviously I didn't know what the hell I was doing back then. You know, I, had a borrowed camera that I set up in my shop, you know. And Do you ever think about doing, a, what's that called where you, uh, like a lot of podcasts are doing it pa for Patreon, right? Have you ever thought about yeah, trying to do Patreon. a fur handling thing, um, a fur handling series, like Patreon, where people just donate, like people just come in and view and donate a little money? So I, d I actually do have a Patreon, I, I, and I've tried it. The problem is, especially nowadays, YouTube is where the traffic is. I understand. So you've it's the got the biggest video streaming service on the planet. Yeah. So you've got to have that audience and that draw to be able to. 
So if you do it on yourself, you're just never going to, people aren't going to find you. People, people they're going to go find something find else. Find it. And very few people, I mean, especially now, you know, back then, I was one of the first people that was putting out trapping content, you know, and, and that kind of content. Now everybody and their brother's got a channel, you know, they're putting mm-hmm. out content. So people aren't going to go pay to watch something that, you know, they can just go right down the search bar and go search too. Yeah, so, I, I mean, it, you. it's tough, you know. You're in a real pickle. Pickle, yeah. But it's been fun. Can they just still support, though, anyway? Yeah, uh, I, I've got a Patreon Without it being page behind a pa- yeah. set up for it. But, I mean, it, it doesn't have a lot of traffic that goes towards it. Like I said. Demand. What is it? Huh? What's Tell people what it is. It Just search Coon Creek Outdoors on, on Patreon. No. But you won't find it through YouTube. No, no. It, it's in a link underneath all my videos. So but. if people are out there to listen to this that like Stu Miller's Coon Creek Outdoors fur handling and trapping videos, they would need to go to Patreon <laughs> and then find you there and give you a little jingle. Yeah, that, that's one way to support. See, now I feel like I well, that's why I'm going to give you all that beaver caster because I haven't <laughs> been in that page to pay you. There's not a, there's not a lot there. And I don't, honestly, I don't post a lot of videos there simply just because the traffic there is not yeah. justifiable to all the work that goes into it. But no, it's like I said, I, I, you don't do it for the money, you know, just like Rick probably knows, you know, you don't trap for the money either. Not right now. I mean, you oh, trap for the, the heritage and the sport of it, you know? So. Yeah. That romantic. Yeah. The there's idea something of it. cool. Oh, it's just, it yeah. just drips the romance. You know, yeah. I mean, you're all oh, about yeah. traditional practices and trapping is one of the oldest, you know, it drips the romance. Yeah. That's all I wanted to read about when I was a kid, man. Yeah. Because kids want to go live out in the woods and make their living off the woods. Yeah. And I didn't know about writing. I thought you had to do it through trapping. What was I in for a surprise? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you ever do uh, any uh, like road trip trapping vacations for stuff you don't get to trap for this year near home? This was my first year. <laughs> yeah. This, this year, yeah. yeah the one yeah, thing me, with- Stu came out, and me and Rick and Stu. Uh, Got uh, abused out in the coyote. Oh, that you, yeah. that was uh, I didn't coyote, know you were on that. That was, one. That was a hard yeah. hard trip. But no, that that was a tough road to hold. That, that <laughs> bobcat's not from that trip, is no, it? No no, 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 definitely not. No, that is one thing that YouTube has given me. It, it's let me meet people, go places, and do things that I would never been able to do. You know. Yep. So, plug your uh, plug your hunting and fishing channel. So if you want to check me out, uh, you can search Coon Creek Outdoors. That's where the good stuff is. That's where the gold is. Yeah, yeah, that that's where I put up all my content. When I say the gold, that's where like the stuff that like um, I shouldn't say that because I don't want to hack on your stuff. That's where like like you excel, um, at like a skill set that's not widely known, and like the fur handling, trapping information, I like to me is like there's I don't think there's anyone. When I want to know something, I'm gonna go look at that. Well, appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, no, that means a lot. But yeah, I, I I pride myself on on the put up and the fur handling side of it. So I mean, you know, there's nothing special about I do, what I do. You know, I mean, I'm not the best trapper and I'm not the best at putting up stuff. But you made a boat from scratch. I made a boat from. Yeah, scratch. Yeah, I came across yeah. that video one time looking up just like looking up boat stuff on YouTube. Oh, you found him? Yeah. Well, I used to see. I, welded a boat because he likes to fish catfish. He likes to fish crappie, so he welded up a catfish crappie combo boat. Yeah, That's it's a nice. sweet freaking yeah. tiller. What, cha- what channel is that on? That's on my main channel, Cooker Outdoors. Yeah. Okay, tell people about the other channel though. So I've got another channel branched off of my main channel simply because the audience just wasn't there. But I've got a fishing channel that I do a lot of content on in the summer. It's a couple years old now, called Total Angling Experience, and that's that's where I'm 
slowly trying to put all my fishing content and you know educational side electronics and different things like that because you like you like cats I like cats and I like, like crappies. crappies that's that's what i fish for at home so cats and crappies yeah. oh you're, sp- if you're speaking my language <laughs> if you're interested in that kind of stuff yeah that's i don't bass fish so catfish and crappies where i'm at i think that everyone out there needs to send Stu miller a few pounds of beaver caster <laughs> or go to the patreon deal and throw a little jingle this guy's way well, your 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 fishing stuff's probably not demonetized, right? Fishing stuff's not demonetized. That's that's another reason, you know. I I wanted to have kind of a backup, if you will, you yeah. know, just because all the problems with YouTube, you know. I mean, there's a, there's a huge deal right now with just kind of all the outdoor community with yeah. YouTube, you know, kind of demonetizing and picking what they want to see. So, man, a conversation we have all the time is how can you come in and. Uh, how could you come in and create an alternative for outdoor? How could you come in and create an an alternative for outdoor pursuits that would get that you would build up so big that it would actually have traffic would be a reliable place to go look? But it's like YouTube is so that's advanced. the problem. It's, it's where all the traffic is. You know, I mean, you want to know something, you search it on YouTube. Like yeah. every, I don't know what it is. Every minute, four hundred hours of stuff gets uploaded yeah, to YouTube ridiculous. or some shit like that. Yeah, YouTube's a Google company, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which but man, like if somehow, but it's it's almost like it's like the Q-tip thing. Like it's just YouTube's not even. It's just where you find information. Yeah, now. it's not. It's a. It's bigger than just. Video we, streaming, I feel like socially now. Yeah, no, we launch, we put every day, every day. Yeah. Our company, we put material on YouTube every day. Like I'm not hacking on it, but I, I what I don't like is I don't like the hostility to the the hostility to the disciplines. It's like yeah. uncertainty in that environment, right? You never know what's going to happen with like putting out that kind of content. Yeah, yeah, they could take it. They could take it away from you. Tomorrow, if they really want it, without any question, yeah, it's private because it's their platform. So you, you know, as Mm -hmm. much as you want to be on there, love it or hate it, you still got to play by their rules. Uh, I I do want to say just because Stu is a very humble person, but I started trapping right around the time Stu did, and just I love old trapping books. But there's a lot of times I read that where I'm like, yeah, someone's gonna have to show me how to actually oh. do that like, like i don't pencil pencil yeah. sketches i'm like yeah, or, or the black and white photos that are so horrible i'm like i this well, that's is what terrible. i was gonna ask too like how like where'd you learn it all how'd you get good at it i was self-taught for the most part everything you know because like i said i i did learn a lot um fur fish and game i've had a subscription to them forever and there was a lot of educational stuff then uh, a lot was just trial and error. I know? thought Trapper and Predator Caller blew Fur Fishing Game away on instructional. Did you think so? When I was a kid. <laughs> fur Fishing Game was more fun to read, but yeah. instructional. There, I mean, a lot of it, and like like Rick said, you know, you can read and you can watch somebody do it, but a lot of it's just getting out there and doing it. Trial and error, you know. Uh, There's I, a lot of real yeah. rough DVDs out there Yeah, that'll, yeah. that'll get you by. Um, I appreciate your channel, though, you kind of uh, one thing and we talked about it, we were trapping was you you cut through the bullshit pretty well because i i went down rabbit holes on like trapper man forum and stuff where i'm like oh my god i gotta i gotta wear a hazmat suit yep. so the coyotes don't like, smell yeah, me when you're making this set you need to squint your left <laughs> squint eye your left eye and i and you know i got Those will so, never work <laughs> i got so wound up on that and your channel is really good it cuts through it and it's so yeah everyone should go subscribe to 
Coon Creek Outdoors. Well, I appreciate that. No, it, that means a lot. And like I said, you know, a lot of guys are just out there to make content. But like you mm-hmm. said, I mean, it doesn't take a lot of people overthink trapping. They they really do. Like you said, they go down a rabbit hole. They got to be this, and you get nine inches set back and four inches over, and this, that, and the other. You know, and it there's whenever you really break it down, there's there's a few simple things that you got to do to be able to, to be successful at it. And once you have those few fundamentals down, you're golden. Uh, I want to just touch on one of the the things you taught me that I walked away from our little trip with that I ignored very much. And I think it's that romantic little side of it. You were like set on sign. And every time we came to a picture perfect area, you were like, well, is there a sign here? Cause if there's not, we're not putting a trap. Like here. it doesn't matter. Cause doesn't it looks matter. so cool. And I, it hit me <laughs> such a reality check. I was like, man, I put traps in areas so many times. Cause cool. I'm like, this is what the manual told me to do. This is what that little book told me. And this is perfect. I don't see any sign here, but I'm going to put a set here. And these, I, these animals are so dumb. <laughs> they don't know they're supposed to be, <laughs> supposed yeah. to be here. Uh, so just something like that. Yeah. I took away from that stew and yeah. So no, you gotta, you gotta be setting where the critters are, you mm-hmm. know? And a lot of people, it, I've been trying to catch coyotes and I can't catch coyotes because everybody gets a hard on for coyotes, right? Like that's yeah. like kind of the pinnacle predator, you know. Well, if you're going to catch a coyote, you got to be where a coyote is, you know. You got to be where he's going to travel and, you know. It's the same thing with a lot of things we're doing in the outdoors, like fishing. You got to be fishing where the fish are. And it, yeah, it, I mean, it's easy set. You, you know, you say that and people are like, of course, but you got to put your time in scouting and. Oh, yep. sure. There's a lot not, of correlation. Not, set, not setting where you want them to be. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. All right, Stu. You you do social media too? Yeah, a little bit. I got Facebook, Instagram. So tell people where that's at. Coon Creek Outdoors. Coon, that's all you need to remember. Coon Creek Outdoors. It's simple as it gets. Let's say a fella has a coyote. They're out deer hunting. Here comes a beautiful coyote running along. Bam! They're like, man, I'm going to hang that sucker on my wall. What do you do? Go to Coon Creek Outdoors. Yep. You can find videos of. How to set the trap, skin and fleshing. I've got videos on tanning for home use and garment use, everything else. So remember, send them a pound of caster. <laughs> <laughs> or go to what's it called? Not Pantheon. Uh, Patreon. 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 Pantheon. <laughs> Don't go there. Who knows? Who knows yeah, what's a Pantheon? Where you're up. <laughs> Stu, thanks for coming out, man. No, appreciate it. It's been a blast, man. All right. It's been awesome. Speaking of wall hanger coyotes. You know what you're doing next. No, we're, we're doing stuff. Going over to my garage. All right, man. Thank you very much. After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. 
And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit themeateater.com or buy it wherever books are sold. 